Welcome to Clothes Wars, the podcast that even now <laughs> finds Tamagotchi raising way too high pressure, despite, you know, literally having a human child and five cats of my own. Those Tamagotchis, they're really hard to raise. <laughs> I'm Amanda, and this is episode 150, the final episode of 2022. Never fear. We're going out on a high note as Jess returns for part two of our conversation about some of the biggest toy crazes of the 80s and 90s. If you haven't listened to part one, go do it now. We'll wait for you. I think it's really important. Sets the stage for all of the toy insanity we're going to discuss today. In this episode, we'll be talking about the environmental impact of toys. And spoiler, as you probably guessed... It's depressing. And yes, Barbie's hair is plastic. And then, after we go through that, we'll dissect some of the biggest toy crazes of the 80s and 90s. Cabbage Patch Kids, Teddy Ruxpin, Furby, Tamagotchi, and Tickle Me Elmo. We wanted to do so many more, but wow, there's just a lot to talk about. So maybe there'll be a part three in the future. I got to say, I love toys. I still love toys so much. So this was a super fun way to end the year. I'm going to warn you in advance that this episode is super long. I did what I could to cut it, but there's just a lot to cover. But you'll have plenty of time to work your way through it while I'm on break. Before we jump into all of the toy madness, we have two final audio essays from small businesses, Courtney of Harkin and Annette of Mannerly. So let's give them a listen. Hi, Clothes Horse community. My name is Courtney, and I've just launched my business, Harkin, this past fall. Harkin is a leather goods business focusing on custom-designed pieces made with veg tan leather that is sourced from regenerative farmers. I'm located in Cleveland, Ohio, and all products are designed and made by me. I focus on custom-designed pieces as opposed to building seasonal collections for a few reasons. First of all, I've seen there is a demand for this type of work, but not many businesses revolve around this model. Secondly, a good leather product is an investment piece. Leather is one of the strongest fibers. It will last for generations. It can often be a piece that you will use every day of the year. So to get a product that fits your desires and needs perfectly is a pretty great investment. Thirdly, this model is really counter to mindless consumerism. So much heart and thought goes into these products for my clients. Some of the pieces that I've been working on have deeply intimate intentions behind them that you can't get from somewhere that is mass produced. I also am trying to be as accessible as I can, so I'm offering a variety of payment installments to all of my clients. The name Harkin comes from the term Harkin Back. As in, my goal is to hearken back to a time when materials were sourced from one's local community to be made into products right there in the community. I've always had an entrepreneurial heart, 
And as I've looked around at how businesses in the fashion industry are operating, it can be extremely disheartening. And my natural response has been to dream up a business that was really led by my convictions. I wondered what could a business in the fashion industry look like if done ideally? My mind kept going back in history, thinking of how clothes and products used to be made. Materials weren't traveling all around the world. People were growing flax and making linen, and a garment would take months or years to be made. And towns had their beloved little cobbler that made and mended their shoes. So the more I dug into that idea, I wondered if that type of practice could happen today. It really excited me. (laughs) Leather design and construction has been my primary skill set that I've honed in for the past eight years. So I'm taking all of my convictions in what would be an honorable company, and I'm putting them into practice with Harkin. Where I get my materials is a huge part of what I value in this company. I source my leather from a tannery in New York called Pergamina, which is a small boutique tannery that directly connects with regenerative farmers. These are farmers who grow organic produce, rotate their crops, and take care of their soil. Also, I'm working out the kinks of sewing with cotton thread. Typically, polyester is the thread that would be used for leather production. However, with materials that are 100% from the ground, or animal in my case as well, and with no added toxic chemicals, I'm able to compost all of the scrap materials. So all of my leather is a byproduct of the meat industry, and now the excess material that I don't use goes straight into the ground again. There's a term for this, it's called soil to soil, and it is the true image of circular fashion. Being just a couple of months in, I've learned how important it is to have a very clear mission. It is too easy to buy cheap materials. I'm constantly reminding myself that I am playing the long game. It has also become very apparent to me how vital my community has been in the process of launching, not just for emotional and moral support in doing something as scary and vulnerable as this, but a lot of my first clients have been from people I know. Launching a business does not happen overnight, especially when doing it by yourself but I'm really having so much fun right now. I am just loving this. Um, So with that being said, you can check out my website. It's harkinstudio.com. Harkin is spelled H-A-R-K-I-N. And you can see more of my process on my Instagram. And that is harkin.studio. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Closed Horse has been such a vital learning space for me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share here. Thank you. Hopefully, I'll be connecting with some of you. Hi, my name's Annette. I have a teeny tiny little company called Mannerly. It's very brand new. I started it in the pandemic just doing little designs, little silly designs. Um, I'd kind of rediscovered embroidery during the pandemic and I was embroidering kind of shirts that I had kicking around and stuff, just upcycling items. 
And at the time, I was reading this book called Poor Economics, and I learned more about non-conditional cash transfers and what a great idea they are for the long term, but they don't really have the greatest impact in terms of getting people out of poverty within a generation. Um, and also at this time, I happened across an influencer who had designed a shirt for charity, which is, of course, fabulous, but it's enlisted as sweatshop free, of course, but it was a shirt for charity and all the emphasis was placed on the women in the wealthy country getting help that they very much need, but what about the women making the clothes? So I personally feel that sweatshop free is the bare minimum and that perhaps we as a world can aim a little bit higher. And that's when I had my little aha moment. I had it at, you know, two in the morning, of course, so I couldn't get to sleep after. But I thought, why not merge some poverty reduction concepts with a business that is fun and also has some long-term growth potential? So take embroidery, which is a very portable craft, a very manageable craft, really, and teach vulnerable folks to make simple designs and pay them a good wage, a more than the going right wage, more than I have to pay them, and hopefully be a part of them improving their lives. So I would leverage branding to consistently provide high paychecks with the goal of cycling folks through because it doesn't actually take a mountain of dollars to make a really long-term difference. But we do want folks in a solid situation before we move on. So right now I am producing basic t-shirts myself, um, embroidering them at home. And then the next phase is that I go to a particular country, um, a conservative country, uh, which isn't exactly the most fair country, that I have spent a good deal of time in and I'm comfortable there. Um, I don't want to say where it is because I think that it's better to keep it pretty quiet because um, I don't really want to getting out because it can be a little bit dangerous because I would be focusing on hiring folks that don't exactly fit into the mold of that country and they have a hard time finding work because of who they are. Perhaps they're gay, perhaps they're trans. Those people can certainly embroider a t-shirt. So I would hire them and keep them on for two to three months, perhaps. And within that amount of time, they would earn a good deal over what they're potentially earning in, in an entire year. So that's what I'm doing. Basically, leverage branding to make people's lives better. And it really doesn't need to be a lot of t-shirts. It's something embroidery, you know, it commands a pretty high paycheck, a uh, pretty high price. So handmade embroidery can be not the most expensive t-shirt to purchase while still having a massive social impact. So that's why I think it's important to me. Solidarity, decency, having good manners. And I'm really excited about it, but of course I'm still in phase one. It's just me. Um, so what have I learned? Gosh, I've learned quite a lot, but mostly I've learned that it takes a lot of time to get your ducks in a row and you don't even know what your ducks are in terms of, of, of business. So that has been a little tricky. Uh, getting the website going, getting all these little ends and pieces put together and really doing it all on my own, um, even though I, you know, I say we on the website, so I don't look like a little goofus. My website is Shop Mannerly. My Instagram is also Shop Mannerly. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a great day. Thank you to Courtney and Annette for taking the time to create audio essays. It is not easy. I've been recording myself talking into a microphone for, what, 
two and a half years now, and there's still there's still so many re-records and edits. In fact, last week I recorded the intro and outro not once, not twice, but three times thanks to some audio issues, and I was very frustrated <laughs> by the time I finished. That's how it goes, right? All of the amazing members of our community who have bravely their audio essays over the last few months have made it look so easy, even though I know it was a lot of work. And I'm so grateful for their vulnerability, their honesty, and the passion that all of them have shared. It actually worked out really well that Courtney and Annette were paired together for this episode because they're both so motivated by a commitment to making the world better. And by the way, Annette, I used to say we all the time when I talked about Close Horse because I wanted people to think I was legit. But over time, I realized it was far more important to be honest that Close Horse really is just me with a little help, of course, from Dustin. I think it helped me build real relationships within our community. And now <laughs> I'm almost offended when someone assumes that Close Horse is this whole content conglomerate. I'm going to be honest and say that the audio essays generate a lot of work for me. Unpaid work, back and forth emails, trying to get things right, editing, additional audio mixing, etc. The net benefit for me, Amanda Lee McCarty personally, is nil. But the bigger picture is far more important. You know that I believe small business is the future. And using my platform to give these business owners a chance to reach others and share their passion, their art, their ideas, this is really the point of the whole thing. Because there are so many small businesses within our community that are committed to doing things in a better way, to considering the human and environmental impact. No, not even just considering these things, but letting them lead the decision-making process. You're not going to get that from Amazon or Anthropology or Everlane even. With small businesses, yes, making a living is important. But these businesses show that making a living doesn't mean exploiting others or sacrificing your values. And that's why they'll always have a platform here. We'll be doing more small business audio essays later next year. Maybe those of you who are listening who are a little too nervous this time will feel a lot braver by then. The next round of essays, which I will be announcing after my break in January, are going to be about retail therapy and our own relationship with shopping and stuff. I know I have a lot of unpacking to do there, even in my own life. As I announced early this week on Instagram, my focus for next year, my focus for 2023, will be untangling our relationship with shopping and consumption. We've been trained since we were small children to associate shopping and new stuff with happiness and success. There's the term retail therapy, which, yes, as you all know by now, is not therapy. How do we untangle all this? How do we change our relationship with stuff? And how do we channel all of that energy that we've been using, you know, buying stuff into creating change in our world? These are all the things that I'll be thinking about over my break and all through next year. This pair of episodes with Jess about toys just reinforced for me the ways in which consumerism is just kind of drilled into us as children at a very vulnerable age. And I guess that means 
here we go, that it's just as good a time as any to jump back into our conversation. So let's go. You know, one thing, and I'm not going to talk about this too much because I couldn't even think of like a solution to this <laughs> quandary per se, although I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, is that toys, and I hate saying this because I love toys so much. I know you do too. They're kind of an environmental nightmare. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's the toys themselves and the packaging. You know, surprise, surprise, 90% of toys are plastic. Yeah. Um, few are actually recyclable because... And this is the same thing with a lot of clothing. Each component within a toy is made of a different kind of plastic. Mm -hmm. So they would have to be fully dismantled to be recycled. And not even all of them could be recycled in their entirety. And, you know, like, that might sound really easy. But, like, let's take a Barbie, for example. Barbie's hair is plastic. Shocker. As an adult learning that, crushing. I was like, yeah. well, that explains why it didn't go well when I flat ironed it. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but Barbie's hair is, is plastic, and it's a different kind of plastic than her face, which is a different kind of plastic from her body. Her body, right. 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 Yeah. So if we were going to recycle a Barbie doll, we'd have to dismantle Barbie, including getting that hair out, which I just don't, it's like in there. I, I don't even know. stitched in. Yeah, yeah. Like I a don't special even you, machine that you use, yeah. That punches it in, yeah. yeah. So it's not even like you could really do it. It would cost so much money and time to recycle a Barbie. And ultimately, all that effort, most plastic can only be recycled one to two times, if mm -hmm. at all. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's just like not plausible. Um, the thing about toys is that they can rarely be repurposed or upcycled into something else, like, say, textiles can be, right, or mm -hmm. furniture or mattresses. Like, you can't turn a Barbie doll into another Barbie, but you also couldn't turn it into anything else other than, like, feminist art. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I was a store merchandiser once, and I was able, I was allowed to do anything that I wanted to merchandise in the store, and I once hung Barbies from the ceiling in a display. That's pretty cool. That's so pretty yeah, cool. yeah, art is the only place It's for the it. only good, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the point of toys is to play with them. And if you play with them hard, uh, they don't hold up, especially like if we talk about something like a doll, like it shows its wear over time. Oh yeah. That's why if you, you know, there are always bags of Barbies like at any thrift store I go to and you look at them and they are busted. Mm -hmm. Their eyes are all scratched off. <laughs> yeah. And their hair their is like. Their hands are chewed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. the hair. Oh, forget it forget it <laughs> so it's like what do you even do with how do you i don't know i mean the, to me it seems like the only way to really stem the environmental impact of toys is to buy less of them which is of course an important part of it mm -hmm. i know here in austin there's a place called the austin toy library where you can borrow toys and bring them back which is smart that's incredible incredible right Well, because i don't know like who the like parents out there will understand like your kid doesn't play um, my kids don't play with toys i always say that they don't they play with my um my throw pillows and my furniture <laughs> and yeah they play with my blankets but not toys they totally. like it for a minute and then it's just like nope i'm good <laughs> um so that's a genius idea one of my friends belongs to this like it's a swap via mail of legos so like your kid gets the legos for a couple weeks because like you know lego sets are so specific now like they yes. build one thing and that's it and, and that's then when you're it. done it's like 
what are you going to do with it? So when your kid is done, you send it on to the next person. There's like a subscription fee. Um, and I think that's really smart too. I'm going to look into that because we're a big Lego family and that's incredible. And it's always this like conundrum too. It's like, okay, we've spent hours and hours on this and you feel like you like really built something, you know? <laughs> oh, totally. And to think about taking it apart is just, that's a really hard thing for a kid. <laughs> so we yeah. kind of just like let it like sit around for a while until like inevitably like a ball hits it or something. <laughs> it falls off the table. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh no, it broke. How could it like a Lego? How dare it break? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just like, man, it's like hard, you know. Like, if you don't have kids, it's really easy to say, "Well, like, just get your kids less toys." But like, mm. that's just if you've been a kid, uh, yeah. you know that that's just like not how it works, right? I mean, I agree. Yes, buy your kids less toys for sure. Yes, I, I absolutely agree to you. Yes, well, like being like it seems like a really simple solution to me, and it's like. Uh, think about how hardwired this is into kids' brains. We just talked about all the marketing that they receive yeah. that they can't differentiate from real content. And like mm-hmm. the desire, the need, it's it's not even a want. It's like it becomes a need. We've all felt it as children because you also as a mm-hmm. can, kid can't differentiate one a need and really a lot of adults can't either. So you, as a parent, you're like, oh, I just want to make my kids happy, Right. I know. That's it's really all you hard. Want. It's also hard. It's all, yeah. It's really, really <laughs> difficult to just be like, okay, well, I'm going to stop buying my kids toys. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it can be done. Like we don't buy toys during the year. It's only a Christmas thing. That's a, so smart. So like it helps that I have these weird kids that don't play with toys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it doesn't mean they don't want them. They right. want them, right? But they'll they'll go with candy over toys. So if you have, you know, if you're a parent, like try that. Maybe <laughs> it's like, well, you can have this candy, and it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how we help that in our house. But still, not it's not perfect. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's really really hard. And then you have grandparents and friends, right? And of course, like when my kids were really little, I tried to be like a Waldorf inspired like mom. <laughs> Like everything was like heirloom quality and made of wood. I remember like for her birthday one year, I was like, whatever it is, just no plastic. Like what? (laughs) I tried that for a long time. Didn't really catch on. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really hard because there's so many outside forces, right? It's like your family, then eventually their classmates, Mm -hmm. your neighbors. I like I tried to raise Dylan similarly, and there were a lot of things I really didn't want in our lives. Like I did, we were vegetarian, mm-hmm. so I Same, didn't want yeah. right, and I didn't want Disney princesses and all that bullshit. I always said that Disney princesses, but then they went ahead and made some like ones that like kind of had some cool messaging. I'm like, God damn it, <laughs> Disney, you got me. <laughs> I remember Dylan with her face when they were four where they were like really into pirates and they were really into being superheroes mm-hmm. and we would like thrift costumes and stuff and like make make it like so cool less toy yeah. focused right yeah but then you know the grandparents get in the grandparents right yeah that's what did it i made a lot of their toys from scratch oh, wow i wow. made like a grocery store out of like a table i had in the basement with like the the uh, melissa and doug like uh, wooden uh, food you know what i'm talking oh, about nice. i made yeah. a vet i made a vet like table and then had like a real stethoscope that i thrifted like that kind of stuff like i was cre- like i really got into it <laughs> but didn't catch on <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really, really hard. Right. It cannot right? compete with a sparkly, um, I don't know, what's this one where they like, it's like a cauldron and a stuffed animal pops out of it or whatever. <laughs> oh, that I saw that you know one. It's one of the about? hottest toys oh this gosh. year. Yeah. And it looks like instant garbage. Yeah. I mean, it was like, a, it was like, I could sense it coming into the conversation one day and I was like, oh yeah, nope, nope. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> like, oh, maybe one of your friends will get it and that will be fun, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I will say like a lot of the toys that I felt like I wanted most based on like commercials or hearing about them from my friends when they finally came into my life, they were so disappointing. Oh, yeah. Um, But it's really hard. You know, I remember one day saying like, hey, Dylan, what do you want to have for dinner? And they said have you ever been to the restaurant near Gam's house? And I was like, what restaurant? And Dylan was like, well, it's like, you don't even have to go inside. They give you the food in your car. And I'm like, um, and what else? <laughs> well, and if you're a kid, your meal comes in a special box and it gets, you get a present. And I was like, are you talking about McDonald's? Because that was the only restaurant what? near my mom's house. Yeah. And Dylan's like, yeah, have you ever heard of it? <laughs> So there's one. Uh, no shame on McDonald's. It just was like not, you Lots know. Of first shame off, on McDonald's. Shame on them. Okay. Well, like we couldn't afford to eat there anyway. Right. And, right. Like, right. Also, did not fit. You know, it's like not vegetarian or gluten free. So what were we doing there? And, I know, but like that's the thing too. Like that's in the '80s. Like that's what we did. We went to McDonald's. Oh, my I remember God, like yeah. sitting in my parents' lap, like in the driver's seat. <laughs> Yeah, I remember yeah. being like, "Oh, one and just like you can drive through the rest of this time." Um, totally. Like, I cannot emphasize enough in the eighties. It was it different was a very time. different world. Yeah, we'd like, go to McDonald's like after church, and like I could I drove through the drive through. Yeah, kids kids drove cars more often than you think back then. <laughs> Uh, and like seatbelts were like more of a, like a recommendation. <laughs> I mean, one time my brother straight up fell out of the car. Yeah. Um, because we were fighting so much in the back seat, and he. I mean, fortunately, my mom was like slowing down at an intersection, but like the door opened, and he literally fell out. Oh yeah. And my mom was like, "I hope you're dead because you're in trouble." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, every mom said that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. I remember like my aunt taking the seats out of the back of her van, and like my parents borrowing it or something and we would just like roll around in the back. <laughs> oh my like kids like I would ride in the back of a pickup truck like in the bed oh, for like you know 20 miles yeah. and like it was like whatever that's what we do <laughs> how are we know, supposed to get sucks. from A to B yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous. my mom had this car that was a two seater. Okay, <laughs> which meant there was no back seat, and my brother and I would just sit in the back in the hatchback. Okay, it's not safe. Right, this is a different time. Well, uh, let's say, let's just leave it with this. There were less cars on the road. <laughs> okay, there you go. That's that's great. Okay, it was good. way it was safer. safer. It was a safer way time. Safer. Was, you, could, you could just throw your kids in there and let them roll around. No seats, right? You're just late. Like you're kind of laying down. It's fine. Right. You can't really like. She can't fit all the way, but you're kind of like in a fetal position. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you'll get some rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what a time to be alive um anyway and still be alive i don't regret any um, of it after it yeah me neither me neither but so yeah so like the mcdonald's came into our life and then slowly like the disney princess stuff started arriving on the mail then my mom took dylan on a disney princess cruise oh my god what i mean i was just like best this is grandma just, like, ever not- 
<laughs> I know. Dylan was like, I remember it was really weird, and I didn't like really like that much. <laughs> and that was... Gam thought the guy who looked like the Pirates of the Caribbean guy was sexy. <laughs> and I was like, these sounds like the kind of memories I would have. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and, like forget the fact that it was like full and complete sensory overload. So if you had a parent like you or me that was like, okay, let's go walk in the woods and make toys out of out of pine cones, yeah, and then your grandparent <laughs> takes you to like the wonderful wo- world of Disney, like it's just your brain does it needs to like prepare for that like it needs to learn how to do that <laughs> totally totally and i guess there was also a lot of vomiting in the pool uh so it's just like it was an intense it was an intense trip um anyway so like it's just it there's no it's so hard right mm-hmm. to like be a parent and like run interference between like everything outside of your family well, it's just, like you know anything, like, and your kids. anyone can relate to this like if your parents try to control something too much you do the opposite so it's like oh, we're, yeah. we're doomed. Totally, like, we're damned if we do. We're damned if we don't. Kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, to- totally, totally. Um, my my best friend growing up, Kara Garbrick, her mom had some friend from college or something who had never been allowed to have junk food mm. when she was a kid. So like that's all she ate as an adult. And so Kara's mom was basically like, "Eat whatever you want. I don't care because I don't want you to grow up to be that way. I want you to make good choices." So I would like go over there because we were also like not allowed to have any fun food. Yeah, ever at our my house. mom is a dietitian. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. Oh, there you go. So yeah, yeah. So no sugary yeah. cereal or Kool Aid or anything like that. Every once in a while, but yeah, you go over to Kara's house and I would be like, I'm drinking strawberry quick and eating a cinnamon toast crunch, and it was basically like mm. next we're gonna have a cigarette or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> right um it was it was pretty wild um well if you ask Kara, she probably has a very healthy relationship with food <laughs> probably yeah anyway so the last thing i just want to call about toys which you and i were talking about is that the packaging on toys is like so over the top way more so than it was when we were kids even mm-hmm. you know it's uh a lot of plastic a lot of also unrecyclable plastic components i couldn't right. find any specific data on that but it's important to remember that one third of the total plastic waste each year comes from packaging of all types and that would be including toys in fact i would assume toys are a big contributor to that probably one of the most uh, yeah the biggest con- contributors because there's just like so <clears throat> many things in there you know and so and so many times the packaging itself is actually more waste than the actual product would be like lol surprise stuff mm, lol surprise yeah, that haunts me. <laughs> haunts me too. I get upset when I see it. I, I it do still too. seems like it's going. It's going strong. Yeah, I think so. And they have like a lot of things that they have like they um, have made like as a response to the popularity, um, like doll houses and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I just get this feeling now when I see it that's unlike any feeling I felt before. It's like some doom, some you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I feel some, the same like, way. I get like I man. I walked through the toy section at Target recently. I did um, yesterday. I love looking at toys anyway. Like, I, I do will too. Buy. Yeah, right? Well, it's really interesting. It it's is. interesting to see. And there's such weird stuff now. <laughs> but anyway, okay, our parents yes. probably said that when we were kids too. The it's toys just, are very weird. And yeah. I think they're a lot less imagination-based than the ones we had. And yes. I'm not trying to be like, when we were kids, we Back walked through the snow. Day. Yeah, we're not trying <laughs> yeah. to say that. But like, they they are much more focused on like, uh, mystery and surprise mm-hmm. and unpackaging and so as a result there's an awful lot of plastic packaging like layers of it in ways that you're like why did like oh here's a set of like toy horses but one of them is a surprise horse that's wrapped in plastic mm-hmm. I saw this out of mm-hmm. all places 
the farm supply store. Oh, you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, I love that I was store. Like, <laughs> I know. I was loving it. And I was like, wow, look at all the toy horses they have. And I was mm. looking at them. And then I was like, wait, there are mystery horses now, too. Mm-hmm. And it's just, once again, like, there's another piece of plastic in there that, like, didn't need to exist. Of you course. Know? No. Just for, like, one shot of dopamine. Yeah. Uh, and hope- hopefully it's a good horse. <laughs> yeah, you right? It, not oh, a bad horse. God. Yeah. Or it's, like, not one you already have. Oh, what a letdown. I know. I hate that. That, when I get into my head about that, <laughs> like, the blind box of it all, and, like, suddenly you have six of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what, what waste, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I'm going to say about how toys are depressing. <laughs> and now. Is it, though? Maybe <laughs> not. Maybe not. Anyway. I don't know. We might have to talk about it more. Okay, so now we're going to talk about some toys that, like, really, really uh, made an impact uh, in the 80s that, like, kind of were a result of all the things we've already talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So the first one is Cabbage Patch Kids, which were the toy of 1983. And I, like, even if I shouted that in all caps, it would not, it would not convey Cabbage Patch Kids insanity. Cabbage Patch Kids set the tone for people going berserk at, at Christmas. Yeah. I don't remember it so much. I was young. I was only Me two. too. Yeah, you were young too. But do you remember when they were around? Yeah. I remember when they were around and I remember wanting one mm-hmm. solely because I saw it on TV. Like none of my friends even had one at that point because it was hard to get one, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. So Dustin watches this series of shows that are like foods that built America, other things that built America, and toys that built America is the new series that they have. Okay. I mean, I think it's on like the History Ooh, Channel or something. I gotta watch that. Sounds good. Um, they're really entertaining. They are like a mixture of like actual like, you know, narrator facts, interviews with experts kind of thing. But then there's also dramatic reenactments. Oh, yes, please. Give me one of those. <laughs> What's weird about the dramatic reenactments is like, I can't, so I watched a couple episodes of Foods That Make America, or Foods That Built America with him and Dylan a few years ago. We were on a vacation and I kept being like, wow, there's like a lot of sexual chemistry between the creator of Bird's Eye (laughs) Frozen Vegetables and the heir to the post cereal fortune. Like, do they end up together? Because there was weird, like longing charged looks at one another and like i don't know there was like a re- like it felt very sexy yeah. when they were talking to each other but i think maybe they're just like bad <laughs> actors or or like attracted to each other in real life or like three seconds before the film rolled they were like make it sexy <laughs> just went with the direction yeah it was so exactly because because like nothing like that came to fruition <laughs> but i thought that's what we were building what towards. a letdown and uh toy <laughs> Toys that, <laughs> Toys that Built America is pretty similar. And Toys That Built America is really based on rivalries between two oh, toys that emerged at the same time or whatever. So there's a okay. lot more drama and intrigue. And from research, like in looking into this, like there's a lot of that going on at this time. Oh, for sure. So there is an episode about Cabbage Patch Kids. And what's different about this one versus the other ones, which, which will be like, this is about Atari versus Coleco or something. This is like this whole episode was about Cabbage Patch Kids. Um, and I will say, I did an episode of Close Horse for Patreon like last year about Cabbage Patch Kids and mm-hmm. I researched it pretty intensely. And yes. some of the stuff that they showed on the show, it did not line up with facts that I knew. Um, so like I'm not gonna say that like that show is like canon. Um, mm. but it was really entertaining. Um, but there was also like weird sexiness <laughs> in this episode, okay? <laughs> If we're going to learn anything from our this episode currently, 
It's that things are just getting sexier and sexier. <laughs> Apparently, they, they came first. They came for My Little Pony. Now they came for Cabbage Patch Kids. So, um, the the core of Cabbage Patch Kids lore, if you haven't heard it, is that like it was entirely stolen idea, right? Um, and that's why this episode is interesting. Yes, we have learned that. F- we learned that right. from a meme, right? We all learned that from a meme. Yes, yes, totally, totally. <laughs> and the music really like emphasizes the betrayal. Mm. So Cabbage Patch Kids were actually invented by Martha Nelson Thomas, a sculptor. She called them doll babies and she sold them at craft fairs. And these were literally like individual unique pieces of art. Um People could adopt these one-of-a-kind creatures from her. Um, and the doll babies had big eyes, round full faces, tiny nose, yarn hair, exactly what we know of as Cabbage Patch Kids. But they were completely fabric. They were sculpted out of fabric. No two doll babies were alike. And each came with a packet labeled important papers, which included an adoption certificate and a letter from Martha declaring that this is an original little doll baby by Martha Nelson. Mm. It also would have a letter from the doll stating its name and the things the baby liked to do. Aww. This is all, if anyone who's had a Cabbage Patch Kid, you're like, oh, check. Yeah. Check, check. Oh, yeah. It's like creating the beginnings of that world for the child that gets the doll. And then they're left yes. to move, you know, continue the story. Exactly. Except that Martha didn't see these dolls as toys. She actually saw them as art, as collectible pieces. Collectibles. Okay. I'm okay. Not to go off on a tangent, but I'm get I'm heading deep for like head first into Meleg Mouse. You know Meleg Mouse. Who's Meleg Mouse? Wait, I'm gonna Google it. It is like the most beautiful, like heirloom quality toy i think it's scandinavian or something beautiful dude when i tell you (laughs) those toys are not for kids they're for adults (laughs) but i'm buying them for my kid because i want to play with them yeah oh my gosh it's amazing everybody go check it out it's m-a-i-l-e-g everything is beautiful it's so beautiful anyway Anyway, it just reminded me a little bit of that like everything is like wooden and and fabric and you know looks real and the quality is so amazing but anyway um yeah so she didn't really see them as toys she made a living off of selling these like people like them they weren't super expensive but they were like a little bit of a luxury item um and she never had a vision of them being like mass produced or advertised on saturday morning cartoons like that was not she would not have said i'm a toy maker You know, Mm -hmm. in 1976, she met a new customer who I'm just going to tell you on the toys that built America. This guy is like way too sexy. Like I was like, (laughs) this guy is too sexy in an evil way. Like I can't I can't watch this. Right. Um, It's a guy named Xavier Roberts, who if you've ever had a Cabbage Mm -hmm. Patch Kid, his name is signed on the butt. On the butt. Right there. (laughs) And he was a gift shop owner. He bought some doll babies from Martha to sell at his store in Georgia. They performed really well for him, so he kept ordering them from her. But she eventually visited his gift shop and was astounded to discover that he was marking them up a ton, like majorly jacking up the prices. And she didn't like that. Mm. She felt it was unethical. Um, So she asked him to return the unsold inventory to him. And he threatened to make his own version if she stopped selling to him. Well, she said, I don't care. I don't want you to take the, sell these dolls anymore. And so he, like, made good on that threat. Now, wow. in the Toys That Built America episode, 
they shared a different story, which is that he managed a group of gift shops. I have no idea. This is like, it's different than what I read in all the research I read. I mean, he was buying her stuff and selling it in the gift shops. And he was like, oh, hey, at this one gift shop that I have that's for a state park, we're going to have a craft fair. You should come and sell at it. And so she did, but she didn't sell any dolls. And a customer said to her, hey, why are these more expensive than they are in the shop? And she went in the shop and saw that he was selling them for a lower price than she was selling her. Oh, them. Okay. And when she confronted him, he was like, well, we sell a lot more if we sell them at a lower price. And that mm. was where the divide happened. I, I have no idea, but it's a very dramatic scene. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so Xavier Roberts, he's like, I'm going to make my own dolls because I am really sexy and evil. And, <laughs> and I always wear a cowboy hat. Always. He was on the show. I mean, I'm telling you, that was part of the appeal. He was like dark haired. I think he had like a big belt buckle. He had a, like a very well trimmed beard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, he In the show, he looked like someone who would be friends with Dustin. Like it was, he looked like, oh. a major, like he'd be in a band. So yeah. um, with the help of Debbie Moorhead, they hand stitched dolls called the Little People which he unveiled to the world in 1978. So these are still fully fabric, and they are literally mm-hmm. like 100% a copy of what Martha was making. Yeah, um, I'm seeing a picture, the little people pals. They're like the same, right? Rather mm-hmm. than buying the dolls, Roberts was sure to say that they were just being adopted, and they came with adoption papers just like Martha's. They had a name, all that stuff. And his little people were about $60 to $1,000 depending on like what was special about them or what they came with. The little people were first sold at arts and craft shows just like Martha. So like direct competitor. Then later at Babyland General Hospital, which was an old medical clinic that Roberts and his friends, and they were now his employees, converted into a toy store where they staffed doctors and nurses to deliver babies to excited <laughs> customers. There was like a whole a whole thing that oh, happened. Man. I didn't and they would know come out of the cabbages. Actual, right. I, I mean, I never, I've never been there, but I remember hearing about it. I never knew that it was actually a, a medical facility that they converted. I thought it was just like a retail store. That they were like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I yeah. It makes it, it so much, it makes it kind of creepier i don't know why. i mean it was interesting they were showing and like i don't like once again i'm not sure if we should count on toys that built america to be like okay. a historical document of truth right right but they were showing reenactments of the way the babies would be born there and it was like you know you'd look through the glass window and there were like cabbages and then like it'd be like oh it's time for a baby to be born and like would inject something into the cabbage and then pull oh, out gosh. like by the feet the babe, the couch touch kid, and spank it on the butt. Oh god! And then it no. was, your, and then the nurse would bring it to you, right? This is know, like was, going very like Margaret Atwood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really weird, right? It was really creepy. This is when the show stopped being sexy. Basically, this is the yeah. point. So, um, Babyland General is still there. I a couple years ago, I was like just for fun because I love to read Google reviews. I was reading about it, and people were like. We well, are not going to believe this. This is basically just a place to buy dolls. And I was like, yeah. I, I How dare it. they? I mean, someone was like, these nurses don't even seem like they're passionate about what they do. And I'm like, well, because they're like retail sales associates. Are they even guys. registered nurses? I know. I don't even think these are real RNs. <laughs> I don't know. There was something about that doctor that said to me he wasn't an OBGYN. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Babyland General though I mean like now you're getting this whole experience it's even more unique of course this is going to pick up way more news coverage or interest than anything Martha was doing right oh yeah 
1981, Atlanta designer and licensing agent Roger Schleifer approached Xavier Roberts about licensing the little people, meaning like we're going to get these made, right, in a big way. Um, He thought the name was terrible, which I agree. Mm -hmm. And also Fisher-Price already owned that name. I was going to say, little people already was around. I'm surprised that wasn't like a I know, like early on, right? Maybe it was, I don't know. So he changed the name to Cabbage Patch Kids. Um, So Xavier Roberts wasn't even responsible for the naming of them. I mean, like he's just like, capitalizing off of other people's work, Mm -hmm. right? He's like, sure, sure, sure. Sounds good. So the thing about Cabbage Patch Kids is that they didn't look like any other dolls that existed out there, and they still don't. No. Um, And so Schleifer took these from every major toy company. He he met with all of them, Hasbro, Mattel, everyone, and everyone was like, these are so ugly. No (laughs) one will buy these, okay? Like, we don't want them. Mm. After many, many tries, probably so many awkward meetings, uh, he was able to surprisingly get an electronics company called Coleco mm-hmm. to buy the master toy license. So Coleco's thing was making like electronic games. I remember you know, Coleco. Like yeah. Ones and, yeah. Coleco was like, you know, we've had some flops with some of our electronic games. We're going to try some to diversify here. We're going to try to make these Cabbage Patch Kids. And Coleco did bring in a team of people and had resources that certainly Xavier Roberts didn't have that allowed them to make Cabbage Patch Kids more appealing and even more importantly, more scalable, like, to, you know, allowing them to be mass produced. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when the plastic head came into play and then like still the soft body. Yeah, which I believe it still is, right? I don't know. Yeah, soft yeah. body. Some of them are fully plastic so you can take them in water. Yeah. So they nailed the packaging. I remember the box specifically when I finally got a Cabbage Patch Kid was really cool. It was like yellow. It was had a lot of stuff. Right. It had like a beautiful background in a in a Cabbage Patch. Do we know why Cabbage Patch? Yeah, I don't know. That's Xavier Roberts like like agriculture. Oh, I don't okay. know. Yeah, he went with his like farmy cowboy kind of. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, They were also able to bring down the cost of manufacturing considerably. Like, remember, uh, Xavier Roberts was selling them at Babyland General for like $60 to $1,000. They were able to bring that cost down to where it would be $20 and still be very profitable. Hmm. It's because of that that molded plastic head. It didn't have to be... Totally. You didn't have to get all those different parts to make the head, the, the stuffing or whatever it was, the fabric. Mm-hmm, you didn't mm-hmm. have to stitch it and shape it and paint it. And yeah, there was a lot that went into it. Yeah, probably making those fabric heads. I can't even imagine how long that would take. I can't either. And making them all consistent yeah, too yeah. had to have been hard. Um, so that $20 price point was the equivalent of $60 right now. So, you know, okay. a little so bit of a higher high, you price. Know, pricey, yeah. but, like, if your kid really wanted it, you'd find a way kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Could. And, like, you, you know, like, it would be, like, the biggest gift they would get that year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the Cabbage Patch kids, you know, they were still even under the new Coleco version. You know, they were going to come with all the adoption papers and the unique names and different outfits. And according to an article in the New York Times from that year, quote, Using computers to keep track of its dolls, the company, despite having almost 3 million of the dolls produced in Hong Kong, said it has managed to keep each one individual by changing characteristics such as eye color, freckles, hair, dimples, and clothing. Um, And I do kind of call bullshit on that. Um, When I was doing this research, I found came across a photo that looked exactly like the Cabbage Patch Kid I had 
His name was Byron mm-hmm. Charlie, had short, curly, auburn hair. The only mm-hmm. thing that was different was the outfit. But I guess that's where they could kind of like, you know. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Those rules of laws of statistics would mean that you could make like a bunch of shirts in different colors and swap them all around. Right. Right. I guess. Yeah. But I do. I also think like in a pre-internet era, it's very easy to convince people that something is one of a kind. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Right. Especially if you're like shipping, um, you know, in different territories and you're like making sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't it, even know if they even had to go to those. those I lengths. know. You could just even be like cities or something, metro areas yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So 1983 was the year that the dolls launched and it was instant insanity. The demand for it was so great that Coleco actually canceled all of the advertising for Cabbage Patch Kids as they tried to keep up with demand. They were sort of like, okay, if we stop advertising to kids on Saturday morning cartoons, maybe they'll forget about it for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, That year alone, they shipped, and this was at that point a record for the doll industry, 3.2 million dolls. Wow. And yet it was just not even close to being enough like to meet demand. Yeah, I was going to say it wasn't fulfilling the demand, no. So stores across the country might only receive one or 200 dolls to sell, which sounds like a lot, but really isn't. We're talking like, you know, like Kmart kind of places, like larger stores. So customers were literally fighting one another over these dolls. It was like the first time that people started getting like assaulted to get a toy. (laughs) Um, The 1983 holiday season saw several violent occurrences and riots at Sears, JCPenney, Montgomery Wards, and Macy's. At some stores like Kmart, Retailers would attempt to control crowds and hopefully prevent them from freaking out by handing out tickets to the first few hundred people in line um, and being like, that's all we have. So we have $200 in there. We're going to hand out 200 tickets because people would be lined out like across the parking lot to get this at store opening. They'd be like, the first 100 people in line are going to get a doll today or whatever. That's it. And then, of course, people would try to like resell those tickets. Like it, it just it left hundreds maybe even thousands in some situations of people leaving empty handed and being very pissed off. Right. Right. And I know in a lot of cases that like people would travel pretty far too. So the disappointment must've been, yeah, pretty insane. I told you that, that I ended up getting a cabbage patch kid because there was a guy in our neighborhood who worked at Toys R Us, which to me was like, oh my God, that's like my dream job. I'm, <laughs> I'm you know, five, yeah. six, but this is my dream job. Um, And he uh, was able, he was like, buying, I, I mean, who knows? Was he buying these? Was he stealing them? I have no idea. But he was like sort of scalping them. Mm-hmm. And he came by our house and told my mom. And my mom was like, oh, you don't need one that badly. But then I told my grandma. Mm-hmm. And my grandma was like, no, you need one. <laughs> and I was telling you, I feel like my grandma paid like 50 or $100 for it. Like right. it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Um, and that's how I ended up with one in that year. I was also like so young. I don't even think I, I mean, I played with him for like my entire childhood. But still, it was like, wow, to be that young and want something that badly and get it is like yeah epic right yeah well yeah yeah. and it probably makes you think yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) you want that magic for all time (laughs) exactly exactly i don't think anything ever compared i also had one because my uncle 
I lived in, grew up in New Jersey, uh, traveled to Maryland to get them from my older cousins. So while he was there, I don't know what his connection was, but while he was there, I had two cousins he got them for, and then he got one for me and my sister. But I was like four, three or four. I didn't really even know what it was or whatever. I just remember that my name is Jessica Todd, and the one that he got me was named Todd Jesse. So it was kind of a big what? deal. Yeah, That is a really it big was. deal. And he had like these knit ov- yellow overalls. So cool. But my mom was like, all you wanted was a doll with a pacifier. So what did they do? They mm. cut a cut, they cut a hole in its mouth so, so I could put like a real pacifier from the grocery oh, store. <laughs> I <love> yeah. That. <laughs> so um yeah, so I played with that doll forever. But anyway. Yeah, yeah no, they were I mean, I I I remember he was like my only boy doll. So he was like a key component of any plot line mm. I was acting out. Oh yeah, so was Todd. Yeah. Only boy dog, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Only boy dog. Because you just like didn't get a lot of those. No, you know, there weren't a lot sure, of them no. out there. So Mm-mm. that was another like unique thing about them. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was this article. It's really more of a blog post, and it's like a really old blog post from. It was actually written in 1998, so it's like re- like you know like way back machine era. Like you had to access it. Mm-hmm. And it was called "Memories of a Doll Riot Veteran: Scars Linger from 1983 Cabbage Patch Brawl." And I'm going to read this to you because, like, this is just, like, how it went. People, like, got hurt over Cabbage Patch Kids. So this this essay, p- blog, whatever you want to call it, was written by a guy who recalled being asked by his mother to help her find a Cabbage Patch Kid doll for his little sister. He was a teenager at the time, and he definitely was not thrilled about this, but he agreed to help her out. So they headed out, they got in the car, and they headed off to a store that doesn't exist anymore. It was called Zare, Z-A-Y-R-E. And it was very much like a Kmart kind of thing. Okay. Um, and as a result of this decision to help his mom, he was part of the infamous Zare's Cabbage Patch Kid riot <laughs> in Wilkes-Barre, PA. <laughs> Which is not far from me. Not far from me. <laughs> yeah. You could, I mean, the Zare's is gone, yeah. but you, you could go visit the site. <laughs> there should be a museum. <laughs> Yeah, this really should be. There really should be. This is what he said. As soon as we approached the store, I couldn't believe my eyes. There before us were hundreds of people, some, the papers would later report, who'd been there since midnight. Undaunted, we proceeded forward. While waiting for the store to open, the conversations among the masses were cordial. Everyone had a story about some child in the family who desperately wanted one of these ugly dolls. I took comfort in seeing some of my friends from Wyoming Valley West High School at a place that I deemed a very uncool place to be. All was well until about 8.50 a.m. when the doors finally opened. It was then that this previously mild-mannered group, which by then had reached nearly 1,000, transformed into a frenzied pack of wolves. (laughs) Frenzied pack of wolves. (laughs) This is giving me so much anxiety. Uh, A massive surge pushed everyone forward as the crowd frantically entered the store. Still, there was uncertainty as to where the dolls were located. (gasps) Rumors outside had hinted that they were not in the toy department, but at the front service desk. The feverish hunt had begun. Mom and I split up, and I noticed a throng gathered near one of the front counters. Heading in that direction, I saw people running at full speed, pushing, shoving, elbowing, and screaming. Soon, the store manager, later quoted as saying he was fearful for his life, began fending off the crowd with a baseball bat. Standing Mm. behind the counter with the bat twirling in the air, he began tossing the dolls out over the crowd. (laughs) This, of course, triggered the same reaction you'd get from a fumbled football on Super Bowl Sunday. 
One poor woman lucky enough to snatch a doll later was pushed to the floor and had it torn from her grasp. She was later taken to the hospital (gasps) with a broken leg. Four others were also treated for injuries. We headed back to the car empty-handed, but with our integrity (laughs) and dignity intact. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. You know, I'm, like, sitting here as you read this thinking, like, how many families are still telling this story at Thanksgiving? I know. I know, right? Plus years later. (laughs) Um, But, like, all of this hype and the stories of riots, this only made people want Cabbage Patch Kids even more. And Dr. Lee Salk, who is a professor of pediatrics and psychology at Cornell University Medical College, suggested that Cabbage Patch Kids benefited from, quote, an extraordinary amount of media hype that underscored the crowd effect of everybody rushing out to get one of the dolls. I mean, and, Mm. and it was... it carried into 1984. Yes, 1983 was a big year for them, but 1984 was even bigger because not only was Coleco really churning out enough dolls to meet demand, but then all the licensing deals popped up and suddenly you've got Cabbage Patch Kid pajamas, bedding, storybooks, which the storybooks were terrible, by the way. Mm, Uh, They were, yeah. Clothes for both the dolls and the actual humans, cradles, pacifiers, bottles, Bags for them, strollers, you name it. Posters, stickers, greeting cards, toothpaste, which I did have. Bubble bath, also had. Calendars. The whole world had Cabbage Patch Fever to the tune of $2 billion worth of sales that year. Oh, my gosh. We're talking, yeah, that would probably be like, I want to say roughly $6 billion at this point. Mm. Um, uh, Oh, I'm saying here, actually, that it was $5 billion. Dollars okay. in 2022, so a lot, a lot of money there. That's huge. Yeah. Um, the then Cabbage Patch Kids. <laughs> okay, this is probably not the right way to say this. The Cabbage Patch Kids released a record uh, <laughs> titled "Cabbage Patch Dreams," <laughs> produced by the Chapin Brothers for Parker Brothers Music. No one here in, should be involved in music. Uh, it went. <laughs> platinum and the series of cabbage patch kids books were best sellers the video game cabbage patch kids adventures in the park was also released so xavier roberts was wildly rich like beyond right all from an idea that he had stolen and it's like what it's like 30 40 years later and i am like outraged about this still Mm, like i like my blood is like boiling Right. Martha Nelson Thomas took him to court. And one thing they did talk a lot about on The Toys That Built America is how the case was pretty cut and dry that he had stolen the ideas. Like there was a lot of documentation right there. Mm -hmm. And they had Um, a relationship too, which is a big difference from what you see happening today. Totally, totally. So ultimately, they settled out of court in 1985 for an undisclosed sum. I have no idea what it was. It's not anywhere, but... In the interviews on the Toys That Built America, people were like, she didn't get rich off of this. But, like, at least she was able to send her kids to college. Like, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm still um, mad. I don't care. I'm still mad to you. I don't care what it was. She could have gotten all of it and I'd still be mad. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's but really messed like up. this is, like, the story of an artist, right? The, it the, is the story of an artist. You and I totally fully understand. <laughs> totally. Totally. So in 1986, Xavier Roberts found him back in court, but this time because it was his decision to sue Topps, the trading card company, um, over Garbage Pail Kids cards. Wow. He wanted $30 million. Uh, 
Tops had already sold $70 million worth of cars at this point. So, like, they didn't want to give away half their money, but they'd certainly made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, like, whatever. You can have some of it. <laughs> yeah. They sold for $7 million. And they retained the right to continue producing the Garbage Pail Kids cards with some slight tweaks that were, like, not noticeable to any consumers. Okay. Um, and characters like Buggy Betty and Marvin Gardens and Sydney oh. Lopper and Wrinkly <gasps> Randy. And they all lived Live to, see, to another see another day. Let me tell you, they're still made. I know. I actually, I don't know if they're made near here, but I know somebody that designs for them. Wow. Like, don't know job. him, but know of him. And also... My kid comes downstairs like a couple weeks ago. I don't let them go on tons of screens, like an hour and a half a day or whatever, in different parts. But she comes down and she's like, tell me about Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> and she I wanted mean, to I know. I definitely collected them. And I'm I wondering love them. if they're going to start coming back a little bit. I loved them too, but I took them off the, I put them in the sticker book. Because they were stickers. They were cards, ah. but they were stickers. And I put them in the sticker book and I took them off the card. And like you, when you took it off the card, you took out like some of the design like went with it. Because it was like, you yeah. know, the whole card was covered in, a, in, a, in some kind of art. And the sticker was just mm-hmm. a portion of it. So all that mm-hmm. art lost to the garbage. Uh. <laughs> and it would come with like, and, and we ordered a pack for her. And she like oh, paid wow. for it herself. We got it on eBay. It was in like a, a plastic case. She busted that case open and opened it. <laughs> there were like five cards <gasps> in it and the stick of gum that went with it. Oh, <laughs> so gross. The gum was so, so gross. gross. Um, so gross. I don't even know why they no, put it in there. I know. Yeah, I, I love them. I had a recipe card thing that I kept mine in and I would like, they were filed in alphabetical order because I was really obsessed with alphabetical order. Oh, my God. Of course they were. I know. That makes total sense knowing you. I love it. <laughs> um, and I would go over to Kara Garbricks like once mm. a week and we would like swap cards. Yeah. So like the duplicates, you yeah. know, um, and it was really fun. And I don't know what happened to them after that. But I will tell you, they are definitely back like this holiday at my day job. I brought in both a Cabbage Patch Kids cookbook, which is foul, um, but like is real mm-hmm. food and Cabbage Patch Kid tarot cards. Oh, man. Tarot cards, too. Everything. Every kind of tarot card is available right now. Yeah. That's so weird. Oh, totally. It's such yeah. a trend. It's such a trend. Garbage Pail Kids still going strong, even after giving up that $7 million. So this is kind of like the peak of Cabbage Patch Kids. Surprise, surprise. In 1988, despite all that Cabbage Patch Kid money, Coleco had to file for bankruptcy because they had been losing money just year after year on terrible failed electronic mm. games. Like they just could not get it together. Um, Hasbro, who had previously turned down Cabbage Patch Kids for being too ugly, bought the license, making the dolls cheaper and smaller. Um, but the magic was gone, right? Like it just, it never paid for itself. So they sold the license to Mattel, another company that had turned down the license in the past. Um, Mattel got rid of, I, I'm pretty sure it was during the Mattel era, they got rid of the yarn hair and they turned it into like Barbie hair, basically. Um, they started to make more of them, like more gimmicky, like tying them into like the Olympics and things like that. Um, it wasn't a great performer for Mattel either so over the years it has changed hands several more times it's like a smaller toy company mm-hmm. each time and they still exist I've, yeah I've seen but them. they just aren't a big deal right there if you google them you can buy some right now they just aren't a big deal anymore and i you know you can buy now this year the retro version of the cabbage patch kid with yarn hair at places like target they're like 60 dollars um but i was looking at them last night and there was still something 
off about them and i think it's the clothes the oh clothes yeah are weird they're not, not as nice yeah they were like really beautifully made with like real buttons and stuff back then yeah yeah, yeah they're definitely not that they're like also, shiny like they're not marketing them to kids now they're marketing no. to us that we're so marketed for them, you know like or they're marketing to the original audience because they'll they're like we'll see it we'll get nostalgic for it and then we'll buy it for our kids even though they don't care and won't care they don't care they like no. do not care they, don't and they care. know it's like a limited run thing but they're like we'll just you know get any money we can from it for a short <laughs> period of time i can't find yeah. the new one but yeah but i hear you because you're seeing that a lot you're seeing all those old toys like re-released mm-hmm and it's for yeah. us. Like they're doing it. That's for us. They're doing it for us. They're yeah. doing, totally doing it for us. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. 
Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. You're going to tell us about... This is such a blast from the past for me. Uh, Dustin got so excited to hear that you were talking about this, by the way. Yeah. Because uh, this was his favorite toy. <laughs> oh, was it? Well, I hope that I do it justice. I really do. <sighs> the pressure's on. Oh, man. Now I'm like, <laughs> I'm nervous. But, you know, I like really did go deep into Teddy Ruxpin it, lore, I should say. I- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lay it on me. Tell me about Teddy Ruxpin. Okay. Well, so I think that we, I think that you kind of like, like, gently assigned this to me because of my love of cricket. Yes. So I did two toys for this that were both like animatronic toys. Um, And I think like it is very cricket adjacent. (laughs) But anyway, um, the year was 1986 and Teddy Ruxpin was the Christmas toy craze that year. Um, And it was selling retail um, for $69, which adjusted for inflation is about $200 today. What? Yes. That is so much money. It is so much money. Wow. Toys are so cheap now. Well, yeah. And like we could go into that manufacturing and, you know, and everything falls apart now. (laughs) True. Um, But but Teddy Ruxpin was another one of these like boom boxes, like with the Teddy bear skin. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like not, it was like a definitely like a technological leap forward, but like, wow, aged fast, yeah. right? Oh, sure did. And it, it actually ended up making 93 million in sales in the first year on the market. But anyway, let's go back a little bit. We're going to say, <laughs> okay. so Teddy Ruxman, if you're not familiar, which how are you not familiar, was an animatronic, and we're going to put this in air quotes, bear made okay. with a, and it came with a storybook and a cassette tape but what you don't know is that he was actually not a bear when you told me this 
shot. <laughs> well, I like read it in an article that someone had written and I was like, wait, and they just did, they glazed over it. They were just like, and it wasn't a bear. And then blah, 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 blah. And I was like, but, <laughs> but wait, go back. <laughs> so it, it was invented by um, a former Disney in, employee named Ken Forsey. And okay. um, so like, he's a guy that I looked him up and he looks kind of like Jim Henson, like that kind of type. Like you definitely yeah. want to be friends with this guy. He seems really cool. He started um, working in the Disney mailroom and then he worked his way up um, to the animation department until he was drafted in the army. So when he was in the army and um, when he was out of the army, he returned and came back to Disney. And when he came back to Disney, he got into theme park de- into the theme park development division. So he mm. was doing these animat- animatronics for rides like It's a Small World and Jungle Cruise. And he was actually one of the co-creators on The Haunted Mansion. Whoa. Yeah, so he's like a really cool Big guy. Um, his background also includes work with Sid and Marty Croft, her, who were these... Um, they they made a lot of ch- children's programming in the 70s and 80s. I'm not super familiar with a lot of it. Um, it was like puppets. They did a lot of puppeteering and stuff mm. like that. And the, the main one was Land of the Lost. Um, and I only kind of remember it because the theme song was, <laughs> was so good. It was like Land of the Lost. Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember this? Um, I do. Okay. So Dustin and I have talked about this show before because I only – I have like my – memory of it is super tiny because i think i was way too young okay but yeah, i remember I so specifically the intro to it was like a family was like on a raft okay on a yes. river and then somehow they got like went down some rapids and ended a up different in like world dino- or something dinosaur yes, era. Yes, yeah, yeah it was like really yeah, weird I, yeah i mean I'm, i saw it and i think it went into syndication and i think it was on reruns for a while but it had like that like the, it was a bop the the intro was good um but anyway so he worked for them for a bit in his past and they like that's kind of dis- described as like puppets and children's programming on like acid it was like real trippy and like art like kind of like more artist kind of artistic stuff so um anyway okay. so he's back at, he's at disney and he decided he wanted to create something that had the furry feeling of these realistic disney animals in a toy um for kids so like like, kind of like what you see when you go through a ride it's like a an animal and it's moving and it's got like real looking you know fur and eyes and stuff like that um so this is where the original idea for um teddy ruxpin came out um he didn't ever consider Mm. teddy ruxpin to be a bear but he was an iliop from grundo Oh, okay, yeah. Which I think Iliot from Grundo is like a great band name. It really is. Just if you're in a band and you're looking for a band name. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so um, he showed it to a lot of companies who just didn't really get it, um, like Fisher Price. And he went into it doing kind of like what we talked about earlier, um, where he, he thought he would create a world around it in a show. Mm. So he went to HBO and he pitched it there. Um, and the, the original prototype was really bulky, not very huggable um, as people thought a teddy bear should be. And it was kind of like complicated and, you know, <laughs> um, people just couldn't see it. Like they didn't get, like I'm thinking about the, you remember the movie Big? Yes. Where Tom Hanks's character like pitches something and the guy's like, I don't get it. <laughs> Like, I see that happening with this a lot. Because what it is, is it's like this brand new technology that had never really been on the scene before. Computers are a thing now, but they're still new. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like very new stuff. Um, So 
he kept it going. He originally, he eventually started a company called Alchemy 2 in 1982. And they rebuilt this to include a two-track stereo cassette tape um, so that the sound and the movement of the doll would sync up. As the doll is talking, it would be moving to, like, work, the, the two would work together. Um, and rent eventually ended up um, at Worlds of Wonder, a toy I maker. remember that from the commercials. Um, I loved that name. Worlds of yeah, Wonder. Yeah. yeah. So Worlds of Wonder, they eventually agreed to manufacture it. Um, and then they also talked about, uh, like, immediately after, two live action specials on ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, and they were basically like prolonged Saturday morning uh, c- cartoon commercials, a, a show to made, made to sell toys, basically. Gosh. <laughs> I'm not sure if it ever aired. I couldn't find anything on that. So, um, you know, I'll keep Well, they looking. made a cartoon instead. Um, but eventually, exactly. Eventually, there was a yeah. cartoon that ran yeah. for a while. Um, so the, the first batch that they ordered of Teddy Rex and Bears was 41,000 units. And that sold in 30 days. Wow. And then Worlds of Wonder went on to make... Um, all these different tapes and book titles. And these were sold separately for twelve ninety five. Which is each, a lot. Which is a lot at the time. Yeah. Um, wow. And then what happened was, you know, with any new technology, there's going to be hiccups. In 1985, <laughs> 35,000 were returned because of de- defective operation. And so Worlds of Wonder did this PR spin where they announced that the defective bears... Um, we're going to be treated at Grundo Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of like a Cabbage Patch Kid thing yeah. going on there. Um, and eventually, like, Pleasant Company would do this with American Girls. You know, you create, like, you take a bad situation and you, you know, create marketing around totally. it. Why not? Yeah. And then by um, 1986, over a million had sold. Wow. Yeah. And then, in, so 1986 was really the big year for this. It wasn't until 1987 that DIC Entertainment um, created 65 episodes of The Adventures of Te- Teddy Ruxpin. And this is really like in this, like around this time is when um, Teddy Ruxpin became kind of a part of pop culture. Um, he became a sp- a spokesperson for fire departments teaching kids how to stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> I'm also thinking of like the crime fighting dog and like Smokey the oh, well, I guess Smokey the Bear is uh, older. McGrath. But like yeah, McGrath, that's right. This was like that time, you know, period in time. Um, and then there's an account of a termini- terminally ill child um, requesting that Teddy Ruxpin sing a song at her funeral, oh, which he did. So sad. I hate yes. it. Oh my so God. he became like not even a character, but like a celebrity during this time. <laughs> and so by 1987, the Worlds of Wonder couldn't keep up with demand. Um, having sold 1.4 um, million globally. And this was a new thing yeah. like, for things to sell in this huge, these huge quantities. And, um, but what was also happening was that this um, technology that 4C had created with this company um, was kind of being used by other companies mm. to manufacture other, um, other dolls that were similar, like my girl Cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them were like 1985 um, was Galoob's Smarty Bear. I don't know if you've heard of that. I mean, most of these we haven't. Right. Bingo Bear by Hasbro, 1986. Um, and so just before the holiday in 1987, Worlds of Wonder um, filed for Chapter 11. Ah. That and they were fast. Hoping, yeah, it was a year. It was like a good, strong year. And I think that the cat, the the show, kind of like lived on a little bit. 
mm-hmm. but the product not so much. Um, so we just before the holiday, they filed for Chapter 11, and then the stock market crash of 1987 <laughs> with mm-hmm. um, when the Dow dropped 22.6%, and... Teddy Ruxpin was discounted at $30 everywhere. Oh, wow. So that was really not a good sign. Wow. <laughs> um, no, that fast. Yeah, so Dang. that was kind of like sort of like the the end of it, although it kind of like shades of Teddy Ruxpin would come in and out um, through time. In 1981, Alchemy brought the, Teddy Ruxpin to Hasbro, hoping to reissue the toy um, over, to, you know, to go over two decades. And it didn't really work out. Licensing was passed around to a lot of manufacturers Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really, it didn't really come back until 2005 for the 20th anniversary doll um, to just kind of take, uh, take advantage of that toy nostalgia movement that was happening that continues to today. (laughs) We just talked about that. Um, So Forsey passed away um, in 2014 at age uh, 77 and then 2016 um, Wicked Cool Toys re-released a new line of Teddy Ruxpin toys. So the dolls are still, ex- they still exist, but now they work through an app. Uh, so you can get it um, for $249. What? <laughs> so much money. <laughs> and, um, you know, the Teddy Ruxpin doll of today is much different from the Teddy Ruxpin in looks anyway. Um, it's smaller. It's squishier. Obviously, the technology and time gets smaller. So it doesn't have to be this, like, big box with, like, a doll head on top. Um, it has a cooler hairstyle, more stylized vest. Um Cooler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so like this was a per- perfect example of a show made to sell a toy, a toy made to sell a show. But there was this in- entire lore behind Teddy Ruxpin that I found so fascinating because you could tell that it was the lore that kind of like cr- like kept this dream going for Four C. Mm-hmm. Like. It- uh, like Teddy Ruxpin was basically like an Ewok, right? He was from this, yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was kind of like, and that was like a big aesthetic then in the eighties. Oh yeah, like a big totally. deal. Um, but there were all these other friends that were created for this world. Grubby the Octopede was his best friend. Burl was Teddy Ruck. Burl Ruxpin was Teddy's long lost <laughs> father, and he was the he was known as the Hermit of Leaky Lake, and he was dressed he dressed like a monk. And he had lost his memory and he had to relearn who Teddy was. So there was all this, oh, this like, is so 80s, it was so 80s, so there 80s. Was all this like yeah. very like crazy, like background to it, which I thought was so interesting and kind of cool. And it was like really <laughs> detailed and you could tell a lot went into it. So I think the heart of it was really in the lore, not as much in the toy as in the lore. You could tell that, you know, a lot of heart went into, into creating it for sure. Um, But good news, good news. Teddy Ruxman show ends with Teddy Ruxman, grubby and gimmick, which was like kind of like a, he wasn't a human, but he looked like a human and he was an old man inventor. He was kind of like, um, what, like Pinocchio's dad, what was his name? Geppetto. He looked kind of like a chubby Geppetto. It, it ends with them returning to Rilonia, which is the, 
place where they lived on Grundo, where they are reunited with their families. <laughs> so it's all good. Don't worry. It's all good. Okay, good I was worried. I was, I was really worried. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think this is like perfectly sums up kind of like what's happening um, in the market because of computers are making a big you know, play. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Wars is huge and everything is just kind of like, you know, integrated into products at the time. When I think of the 80s too, I think of animatronics being so, because of like technology making animatronics more scalable and computers and whatnot, like we have to remember the 80s is also the time of Chuck E. Cheese Mm, and Showbiz Pizza and like going to see a fully animatronic band Mm -hmm. play while you eat pizza. Yeah, and like immediately followed by like Jurassic Park. And things like that. Yeah. So, like, this is a big deal for us when we're kids, like, all these moving things. Like, I wanted to be an animated engineer when I was a kid. Oh, wow. I wanted to go. That's a pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I wanted to go, and this was before CGI, right? So, like, all right, I've yeah. ever done is, like, tried to be in industries that are dying. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you know, there were people that did this. Like, they made these little, like, you know, animals, moving animals and things and movie magic and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's this is just so, so of the yeah. time. I mean, it's like perfect. Right. And yeah, it went, it went fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. that was fast. That was, this was like 1985 to 1987 was really all that it really was. Which for us to be still talking about it and thinking about it, like I still think about Teddy Ruxman sometimes. Like that's a big deal. And it was only really around for two years. That's I wild. know. I mean, that's like, that was the thing that surprised me most about the yeah. story is that it was so short-lived. But a lot of these 80s and 90s toys are like that. Yeah. Especially the ones that are tied to technology because they became obsolete mm-hmm. as fast as they were new and exciting. Right. And I think they became uncool with kids like within 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just to think about how expensive Teddy Ruxpin is, that is imagine how many annoyed parents there were. Yeah, and I don't know. I knew a couple of my cousins had one and like I had a friend of a friend that had one and maybe a neighbor and like none of them ever worked. Yeah, my cousin had one and it never worked. Like ever. I don't think it like I don't think maybe one time they got it to work or like your parent had to do something to make it work and nobody ever wanted to help you. So they were just like Yeah, that's the other the thing. No one box. helped us when we were kids. No. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. Uh, we were like on our own. We weren't wearing seatbelts. <laughs> we were like we just had to figure stuff out. Um we were allowed to use the microwave. <laughs> we were allowed to drive. <laughs> yeah, we were definitely allowed to drive a lot. <laughs> Um, Okay, well, I'm going to talk about another toy that came and went pretty fast, too. And that is Tamagotchi. Mm. Um, And the year for Tamagotchi was 1997. I also learned that the the name Tamagotchi means egg watch, which makes sense because it was an egg egg that you watch. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, and it was released by Bondi in 1996 in Japan and then in the USA in 1997. So by the time it arrived in the US, people were like already hearing about it, right? Like, oh my God, wait till you see this crazy new toy that the Japanese have invented. And, and you couldn't get your hands on it, right? You couldn't, so right? Yeah, totally. The, the, yeah, the desire to own it just built and built. <laughs> 
Totally, totally. And the other thing I remember about the 90s is that there was a lot of this fear that Japan was going to like overtake the United States oh, because yeah. they were so much better at technology and the kids are smarter and the education system is better and all this other stuff, right? Like it was constantly like, if you want to be that. competitive in the future, you better learn Japanese, like things like mm-hmm. that. So, um, so Tamagotchi was invented by Aki Maita and Akihiro Yakoi. Um, they both won the year that uh, the Tamagotchi arrived in the USA. They won, this is a fake prize, the 1997 Ig Nomal Prize for economics, <laughs> um, dubbing them the father and mother of Tamagotchi. I'd never heard of this, but this the Ig Nobel Prize is a satirical prize. It's supposed to be like, oh, look what you did to this world kind of thing. <laughs> um, sort of like the Razzies or something, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like a lot of these toys, they, there's a mythology here. Tamagotchis are a small alien species that deposited an, an egg on Earth to see what life was like. And it is up to the player to raise the egg into an adult creature. Hmm. Um, did you ever have one of I these? I did not. So let's see. In 1997, I was in, going, I was in high school. But my cousins had them. And I remember them and their friends ha- wanted, they had multiples. And so Kam- Tamagotchi was on, came on a keychain. And so my cousin, mm-hmm. she had a keychain of keychains. And I think she had like seven or eight of them on this keychain. Whoa, that is crazy. So I had one. I was in college mm-hmm. when this came out and I had one and uh, it was so stressful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I can't imagine having more well, than one. Well, I have one now. My kids have two. Oh, wow. And they're, they just beep and beep and beep and beep. Yeah, yes. Now, supposedly, the newer versions aren't as stressful. Oh, just, okay. I, whatever that means. I have no idea. Because that was one of the complaints is they're, like, really mm-hmm. stressful. Um, pets have a hunger meter, a happy meter, and a training meter. The owner was supposed to feed, train slash scold, <laughs> clean up the poop, and generally care for the pet. Without care, the pet will die, right? Mm-hmm. The pet would die. Pets could die from underfeeding, overfeeding, not cleaning up their poop, but... Pets could be toilet trained, which took some added work, but then you didn't have to worry about them dying from being exposed okay. to the poop. Um, they could die from loneliness. Um, they could die from sickness, which generally came from poop. being surrounded by poop. <laughs> Adds up, right? Yeah. Um, when pets would get sick, they wouldn't eat and they would eventually mm. die, but they could be treated with medicine and then they would be fine. Okay. So I think that the whole poop thing thing doesn't exist anymore. Like too much poop, I think just disappears on its own. I could be wrong. <laughs> That's good. That's good. It's stressful. It's stressful. Yeah, they, they poop do. a lot. Um, so pets could also die of old age, but they might reproduce. So you would just have a new pet with a yeah. new game. So I found this 1997 New York Times article called Love It, Feed It, Mourn It. That's a great title. Um, according to Bondi, this is what they told the New York Times. The toy does not actually die. Instead, its life cycle ends when it sprouts wings and the packaging says returns to its home planet millions of miles away. (laughs) But children were like, nah, this is dead. Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, it does grow wings and it floats off like an angel to heaven. Totally. Totally. And children were like really struggling. This was having a really negative impact on children's mental health. Um, the Tamagotchi. Mm. Uh, according to Dr. Andrew Cohen, a psychologist at the Dalton School in Manhattan, or at least he was in 1997, he said, the toy creates a real sense of loss and a mourning process. Kids want to nurture and take care of pets. It gives them a feeling of empowerment and self-importance. But here, the consequences are too high. 
it's out of control. It's out of control. And (laughs) children were under so much stress to like feed, but not overfeed and clean up poop and train and give attention. So it's basically like the first year of life when you have a baby. (laughs) It totally is. It totally is. So like the thing about there was, I mean, this toy had some flaws and one was that like you couldn't put it on pause and go to school. Right. Um, like, so your creature could get sick or die while you were at school. So kids were bringing them to school and schools started to ban them because kids would stop working when it would beep, right? It was driving teachers crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids would cry at school because their pet t- died. There was a story of like it being like a state exam, you know, like how you would have to take those in school periodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kids were like stopping to tend to their Tamagotchis. And like there was like, is this test even viable at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just a lot of a lot of problems. Dr. Sylvia Rim, who is a psychologist and author of what a what a creative name here, Dr. Sylvia Rim's Smart Parenting. <laughs> she told the New York Times, we try to bring up kids to be caring and loving. And those are the ones who are hurt the most by this toy. Oh, the sensitive so, ones. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Tamagotchi, uh, it was another one where it was like really hot for a year. Uh-huh. And then it fell off because was it people only were a like, year? wow. It was about a year, maybe two. Um, other competitors showed up. The other biggest one I would say would be Giga Pets, but there were other smaller like attempts mm-hmm. at taking down Tamagotchi. Um, so it became a little oversaturated, but also kids were like, this isn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And parents were like, I don't want to put my kid through this. <laughs> yeah. um, so they came and went pretty fast, but they're still around. Um, t- the co- Bondi tried over the years to make more and more versions that were like less stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't beep as much, didn't upset children, didn't just disrupt their lives. It got too watered down maybe. Yeah. yeah, and kids were like, I'm, I've moved on to something else. Right, and the technology was no longer novel. No, no, not at all, not at all. And so, like, it just, I mean, they're still around. Like I said, we actually sell them where I work. We have them this year. We have Hello, Hello Kitty ones, mm, and people cute. are buying them like crazy. But I think that they are now, like many of these toys, for us. Yeah, not for, for us, our not children. for right. yeah, And we'll yeah. buy them, we'll be like, why don't they love it? Like, I loved it. <laughs> Exactly, and we don't know like exactly. all of the millions of dollars of marketing that went into getting us to love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't really, totally, I don't really exactly. Remember so much Tamagotchi marketing. That was a word of I don't mouth think so toy either. more, right? I think so too. Like you would see someone with it, and they were like, once again, they were kind of hard to find, mm-hmm. and they were a little bit expensive. Yeah. Um, and like this was another one where people were like totally illicitly selling. Oh, them. right. Um, so that's that's Tamagotchi. Mm. Yeah, I do remember it. <laughs> oh, and I live with it every day. There was one day, like the day I talked to you last, it was like all morning. It was beeping somewhere. And we were like, where's the day? Uh, so it I lives on. I can see on. why they fell I off sure can fast, too. I sure you know? can too. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, it's they're basically annoying. like, they're, yeah, they're annoying. And it's like, this is parenting. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I did read one article and I was it was like suggesting Perhaps appropriately enough, like, you know, in in the 90s, there was like a big, it was like a trend. My school totally did this too, where you'd have to like, for your like, I don't know, it wasn't like sex education class. I don't, maybe it was where you would have to like have a baby that was like a bag of flour or Mm -hmm. an egg or something like that. And my my partner in class, uh, he was like really, really bad parent of our egg and it got broken and he had to go out and buy more eggs. Uh, he had his driver's license, so it was okay. Um, wow. But 
Uh, articles were like, I don't know why we're having, and these weren't people being like snarky. They were straight up like, I don't know why we're having teenagers take bags of flour or eggs when they should be using Tamagotchis because it's much more similar to the experience. <laughs> it's much more similar. Yeah, they actually like, I, I never got to do it, but Dan, my husband, he did, a, he had that baby think it over, which was the doll they used oh. in like health class that you took home and it would cry during the night. And he just like put it in a car seat and like played street hockey with it sitting on the side of the road, you know, kind of. Like. But anyway, yes, yeah. parenting. <laughs> He's a great dad. He's a great dad now, so it all worked out. But still, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so like, uh, so technology again, once again, is the you know is the theme here with Tickle Me Elmo of nineteen ninety six. So Tycho was responsible for Tickle Me Elmo. Um, it was actually originally invented by someone named Rob Dubren. Um, and okay. he was, he had worked in like toys and gaming for 15 years prior. And he had created this toy that had began as Tickles the Chimp. It was a monkey. Um, <laughs> it was a monkey that basically like you tickled it and it would laugh. Um and it was, you know, it, it seemed like appropriate for the technology, which was new, which was the sound and the movement um, uh, mm-hmm. all in one. Um, shades of, of Teddy Ruxpin, for sure. <laughs> um, but it had other iterations. <laughs> and this goes back to the, what you talked about with licensing before. Um, so at the mm-hmm. time, like... Um, somebody had the licensing for the the mechanicals someone had licensing for the stuffed animal and it wasn't always in the same house so it kind of like this toy got shopped around to different places before it landed um in the place that had um so for example it had a it landed at Tyco had the Looney Tunes license and they thought, you know what? We're going to do oh, this, yeah. but we're going to make it to the Tasmanian devil. Looney Tunes was huge at this time. <laughs> and so they were like, this is great. We'll have it be the Tasmanian devil. But they found that it was like really aggressive <laughs> and like, you know, and people and kids like, and it was more kind of like a boy sensation. Boys loved it more. Yeah. They wanted something that both boys and girls would love. Again, we're talking about this binary, forgive us. But um, so, and they also found that kids didn't really want to be friends with the Tasmanian devil. He wasn't really, he didn't have a very good personality. So it eventually landed, um, Tycho eventually got their hands on an agreement um, with Sesame Street. And that's where it became Elmo. And the the rest is history. But anyway, it it was geared toward preschoolers. um, And the appeal was that it was this like new technology. um, And the character was super popular. um, And sound in toys had been around for a while, but it was getting less expensive in toy manufacturing because of changing technology. Technology, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, like I said, also pop, they thought it would be popular because it would be good for both boys and girls. We're talking about like a beloved character here, Elmo. He's soft, he's snuggly, he talks to yeah. you, he's your friend, and he's someone that you can connect with. And a lot of kids were really connecting with him. Uh, originally, it was going to retail for $30. Um, but there would be a point in time we'll talk about when it was going for as much as a thousand dollars on resale sites like eBay, which were still in their infancy at the time. Um, wow. So production began. It was pretty smooth. Um, Sesame Street hadn't done a ton of licensing like this before. Um, 
they were a little nervous because they didn't think the doll should shake. So what happened was a, t- a kid would hold Elmo, they would touch it. And the te- new technology was that it was touch sensitive. So it, the kid would mm-hmm. touch it. It would start to shake and convulse and laugh. <laughs> And the laugh and the laughter would build and build. So it'd start off like gently laughing, ha ha ha, and then it would build to like this kind of like you know really intense laughter. <laughs> and so, so, so Sesame Street, which was an educational kids production, you know, it was an educational show. Yeah, um, yeah. They thought that th- that parents would think it was having seizures, so they were really worried about that. Um, that was their only real <laughs> input, and so like they put it through testing, and no parents thought it was having a seizure. It made a lot of people smile. It was just something that like was lighthearted, you know. Yeah. Um, then another thing that was a problem was that at one point it said, um, "Stop tickling me." <laughs> And they were, that was a line that Elmo would say, that Tickle Me Elmo would say. And they removed that because they didn't think it was comforting to a child to be, you know, saying that because it shows, I guess, like non consent, which is right. understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another thing that they did that was really different for the time was they marketed it on shelves at toy stores and, um, you know, big box stores with the try me button. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. This was very new technology at the time. They thought because the movement of the doll was so important for people to see, they needed to have that button so people could press it and see what that doll actually does. And we all have a story of uh, ourselves setting every single one up uh, in the Walmart aisle, (laughs) don't we? I mean, I did it. Like, I remember me and my best friend and my boyfriend at the time went to Walmart all the time and we would just go and like set all of the Tickle Me Elmos up and they would convulse in the box would like fall off the shelves. <laughs> yes, I totally remember that because like as soon as you said that they were worried that parents would think they were having a seizure and I'm like, um, yeah. Yeah. Like they were, it was not, I I mean, I was an adult by the time this came out or like not exactly yeah, an adult, but I was like in high school. old enough to be to be like not interested anyway, but I thought that they were so Yeah, weird. not interested, but kind of like you wrote it off as like, well, it's not for me. I'm not the target market. We didn't know that it would yeah, be this like yeah. huge pop culture moment, really, even. Um, so like lots of weird things happened too. Um, Mark Johnson Williams was a toy consultant that he um and he was they had this really great team, like they're all still friends today kind of thing. Um, and he worked to mm-hmm. coordinate the Elmo laugh with the shake. And so he'd have to travel a lot from manufacturing sites to, you know, business meetings, this kind of thing. And he'd have to carry these things with him. He was once suspected by the FBI of being the Unabomber. Cause this is a time of the Unabomber what? because yeah, because he was, he, oh uh, because he was always carrying around these um, doll heads and these weird batteries <laughs> <laughs> and um, was sending things through the mail like this. And he also like had the, the profile of who they thought the Unabomber was. Yeah. Wow. So this went on for like six months. And eventually the Unabomber was caught. And he was like very much relieved. But they're still like, you'll hear about it, like Elmo and the Unabomber. There's still like little rumblings of them being connected in this very small way. <laughs> you know how the PR machine wow. works. Or the, you know. Um, yeah. So it was released in the summer of 1996. And it did pretty well. Um, there wasn't a ton of fanfare. It sold well, though. Um And so I think what was probably happening was that Sesame Street toys were still seen as educational. Um, So it made them a little bit less appealing until Rosie O'Donnell gave her seal of approval. 
Dun, dun, dun. This is like the most 90s ever, right? Rosie O'Donnell's show had only been on the air for a little while, but it was a huge success. I don't know anybody that didn't watch it. I mean, most people watched it. It had like a really wide range, the the audience, the the target audience was like this really wide range. She was a comedian. She was, you know, it was lighthearted. She often was playing with things on the show. Um, So she, Mm -hmm. you know, she would say to people, and this was like very early influencer type of stuff, send me what you got. And if I like it, I'll talk about it. If I don't like it, I'll give it to my kid, whatever. Rosie O'Donnell had been given a Tickle Me Elmo that she gave to her son that he flushed down the toilet. (laughs) And he was so sad about it. And so, like, she started talking about it. And then one day, she offered 200 Tickle Me Elmo dolls to audience members on her talk show. And at the time, they had been forecasting 100,000 of of these to be sold. And then it went to... um, a million they were expecting to sell like pretty much overnight. So they totally underestimated his popularity. And so they were like chartering jets to get the manufacturing to be faster and to get inventory to be arriving. And, um, just like, um, what you were talking about earlier with, um, what was it that they pulled back? Oh, oh, Cabbage Patch Kids. Oh, they pulled, this yeah, was like at yeah, a time yeah. when companies had a heart. They pulled back advertising because they didn't want, um, they didn't think it was fair to advertise a toy that was likely unavailable to kids. So, you know, that was, I found very interesting. So I don't, I think that they keep those things going now because they're, they're just thinking the longer we can get people, this in people's faces, the more we can sell. Oh no, for sure. Yeah. For so sure. it was this time, the Christmas season that violence started to erupt in retail stores among parents who are clamoring for this doll. Um, and then you had actually told me about this stock clerk, Robert Waller, who's a stock clerk um, working over the overnight shift at Walmart um, when he was spotted holding the toy and people went crazy. He suffered a pulled hamstring injuries to his back, jaw and knee, a broken rib and a concussion. And his crotch was ripped out of his pants. (laughs) Which is like, you and I were like, how did that happen? I can't like figure it out, but I believe him. I mean, people were crazy and it's like everybody goes completely blind, right? I think that's what was happening here. So there's other stories like the um, the boss of the Gambino crime family in New York, John Gotti Jr., is rumored to have made like these secret toy pickups at Queens Toys R Us for his kids or, you know, family members. The other one that I thought was so weird... And I don't know if it would fly today because of how, um, you know, luxury marketing goes, but Cartier Jewelers offered a free Elmo with the purchase of this $1 million necklace that they had. What? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, they, it was so popular and Tyco would receive these threats, bombs and bomb scares. What? And Toys R Us eventually like, developed, I guess Toys R Us really at the time, like I, I'm thinking was probably the biggest, you know, uh, pl- you know, that's where you went for toys. So they had to create this, um, this program where they would give out rain checks to people if they came in to get it and they would, you know, go through the rain checks as they came in giving, you know, 
calling people to be like, your doll is here, come and get it. They would have to leave a vague message for them on their answering machine (laughs) in the era of answering machines. And when the person arrived, they would be handed it like a carefully packaged something or other that you wouldn't, couldn't tell what it was. So you wouldn't get attention from other shoppers because they were so worried about these customers getting attacked because Uh, they had this this doll. This is so crazy. I mean, it's like Elmo, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's Elmo. <laughs> I know. And it's and the other weird thing about it is, is it's like, it wasn't even really like super duper. I'm sure it was like there were commercials for it or, or what have you, but it was more like parents knew about it wow. more than the kids. And parents were just like, I know my kid's going to love this and I need to have it to say that I have it. So people went on to like go to resale sites. There were people selling them out of the back of cars at extreme markups, like this kind this of thing. This is just so crazy. I just don't and, even know what to say. Right. I know. And by Christmas of 1997, 5 million Elmo dolls have sold, had sold. Um, and this is one of those toys where it was like the craze was short-lived. It seemed to have a couple extra years when compared to other of the era and I think that's because um, Sesame Street had not done a lot of products like mm-hmm. this before so there wasn't a lot and and you know Sesame Street was and is such a beloved show that um, you know there wasn't a lot of um, n- not a lot of right, toys competing right. with it um, so rain check holders were still receiving dolls up until 1997 wow. and gladly that's such a know. long rain check yeah <laughs> It is a long rain check. Can you imagine getting that call and being like, what? What are you talking about? Seriously. <laughs> I don't <even> remember. Wow. <laughs> um, so, like, they went on to follow this with other toys that were also pretty big sellers. One of them was C and Snore Ernie, mm. which almost did as well as Tickle oh. Me Elmo. Um, didn't have as much of the craze behind it, but at this point, I think they probably had a better handle on how things would sell and, you know, had a better foundation for it. Um, they sold really well on the baby tickle me toys, which were cookie monster, a baby Ernie and a baby Zoe doll, but they never did a tickle me Oscar (laughs) (laughs) because they felt that they had to be true to character. I get that. I I think there's integrity. Yeah. Some integrity here, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, so it kind of has like a little bit of a glimmer here of hope. Um, especially if you're somebody that believes in, you know, children's public television because before the government had not been contributing as much funds were diminishing for these public television programs. Um, so this licensing and royalties thing helped them to expand and, and survive wow. really. I mean, so this was like a happier story yeah. except for that guy who lost the crotch of his pants. So, somewhat that, but also like, you know, as the years go on, Sesame Street licensing went to make more and more plastic yeah. toys that will live for hundreds of years in our landfills. Yes. But, yeah. you know, um, I get it. <laughs> um, so it was re-released by Hasbro again in 2017, kind of like a an anniversary situation. Um, and it sold okay. Um, and then there were other different iterations of the Elmo Elmo doing things um, every couple of years. <laughs> That's what I have in my notes. Elmo doing cool. things. Peekaboo Elmo in, tw- um, in 2014. Um, this is out of order. The chick- Chicken Dance Elmo in 2002, which won a bunch of awards. 
Toss and Tickle Me Elmo in 1997, and then one in 2006, which is a huge deal, which was not as much as Tickle Me Elmo, but it was a pretty big deal. It was called TMX Elmo. And so it was Tickle Me Elmo, but this time Elmo was standing, and a part of the appeal was that he would fall down and roll around on the floor. <laughs> and the, yeah, and the pat packaging and marketing of this was much different than anything they had done because it was in a box where you could only see it was like a box that made it look like it was a secret you didn't really know it was inside but there was a little slot where you could see tickle me elmo's eyes sticking out like looking out at you wow so yeah so they were not only geniuses in their toy creation but in their marketing of it first with the um the try me button and then you know later for the the special elmo with the you know the secret elmo in the box toy <laughs> wow wow they really were yeah yeah they so they went for it and you know it's still kind of like going these kinds of toys for you know with the sesame street licensing Definitely. I mean, Sesame Street, unlike a lot of the other characters we've talked about today, is like timeless, right? It I mean, sure is. Yeah. And I think like, it, you know, it. they're really good at like changing over time. Yeah. You know, agreed. To, like, you know, kind of reflect what's going on in the world. It's hard to say bad things about Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're like, yeah, well, Tickle Me Elmo <laughs> is probably in the landfills right now. Yes. It's like it, do it doesn't have the PR issues. No. And yeah. And this poor guy that like had broken ribs and stuff, but it's okay because at least it <laughs> saved public television for children. <laughs> there you go. So there's that silver lining. And I'm sure that guy, he got a new pair of pants. Uh -huh. uh, he went to therapy. He got to do his yeah. past tour. <laughs> you know, he got a little, he yeah. had his moment. His 15 <laughs> minutes. And Everybody wins with Tickle Me Elmo. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. 
but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. 
The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about yet another toy. This is going to be our last toy for today that also was based on technology. And it's funny, when I started searching, um, we're going to talk about Furby. Uh, When I started searching on Furby, I kept finding, like, just really wild news articles about Furby. And so I want you to imagine that, like, this is like an old-timey news show, and it's like, (laughs) do-do-do-do-do-do. Dateline, November 28th, 1998, the Boston Globe. A near riot occurred yesterday morning at the Walmart store in Lynn as nearly 1,000 parents, as soon as you hear there's 1,000 people there, it like falls apart. Yeah. You know it's about to get crazy, right? Oh, yeah. 1,000 parents contended for the chance to buy Furby, this season's hot new toy. The store had promised to begin sales at midnight, but did not open the doors until 6 a.m. Imagine. Oof. You're waiting out there for six hours in November. Sounds great. Yeah, in Boston. (laughs) Then only 30 of the cuddly (gasps) toys were available. There's going to be a lot of disappointed kids, said an angry dad. (laughs) I can see him in my my mind's eye. I can see this dad being like, there's going to be a lot of disappointed kids. (laughs) And I'm an angry dad. Um, Furby was invented by Dave Hampton and Caleb Chung, and it was directly, and they'll they'll admit this themselves, inspired by the Tamagotchi. Interesting. Which... They felt could have been better. Could have been better. Could have been, been better. better. <laughs> um, their big call out was that they didn't like that you couldn't pet the Tamagotchi. That it was okay. sort of this like, I don't know, it was a lot more of a virtual relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they were inspired to get to work on an electronic pet that you could pet. And these guys were both like major like technology, computer expert, inventor kinds of guys. Um, the working name for this toy was... Furball. So that's how they started, uh, which I actually really like too. I um, yeah, kind of prefer it. But anyway, they didn't ask me, so they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's too late now. So they worked on this for nine months before like getting a licensing deal for it, and then worked on it another nine months, like perfecting it. Um, when it came time to license the concept, they brought aboard Richard Levy, and they struck a licensing deal with Tiger Electronics in 1997. What worked in their favor that was serendipitous that they probably didn't see coming, or maybe they did, is that Tiger Electronics was a pretty small company. So any additional R&D to make Furby better probably would have been pretty limited, and they would have not had a lot of time, Mm because time is money, you know, in these kinds of situations. But right after they signed the licensing deal, Hasbro bought Tiger Electronics, and that gave them pretty much, like, infinite resources to develop the toy. Wow. And that's how they were able to spend another nine months perfecting it and obviously having all of these, like, toy industry experts. Um, Furbies, one thing about them is they speak their own language. It's called Furbish. Uh, Simple sentences, short words, various sounds, and a newly purchased Furby starts out entirely speaking in Furbish, no English at all. But over time, if you were a good parent to this Furby, I suppose, um, lots of like, let's make children have one more thing to be stressed out about, right? 
So if you were a good parent to your Furby over time, the Furby would start to speak English. Oof, that's, yeah. But it was work, right? Um, so in October 1998, Furby made its public debut at F.A.O. Schwartz, which is probably like the best place that you Ever. can debut a toy. Yes. And the store had 35,000 Furbies back ordered by the end of the week. This is one store. Wow. Um, despite only being available for a few months of that year, from October to through December, 1.8 million Furbies were sold in 1998. Wow. In three, three months. months. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It is no surprise, then, that 14 million were sold in 1999. 14 the price- million. Yeah. Wow. 14 million Furbies. Um, the price was $35, but... This is another situation in which they were so hard to get. People were definitely reselling them on eBay and at flea markets Mm -hmm. and who knows where else for much, much higher prices because this was like the toy. Um, By the end of the toy's first three years, 40 million Furbies had been sold. Um, There was also a licensing deal with McDonald's with Happy Meals. I I remember remember those those too. toys. Um, And of course, all the other licensing products that come with Mm -hmm. it right furby stickers furby shirts furby dishes furby socks all the things right um furby did have a cartoon but this is like 1998 so furby cliffhanger cartoons were hosted on the furby website interesting so no television show but we're like seeing a shift here right right and if there was a craze you know those kids are going on there to watch it and you know they're selling them other stuff while they're there (laughs) Oh, no doubt. In fact, like they don't even have to think about FCC guidelines. Right, this is they the have internet. No rules. Yeah, the internet is the wild, wild west. It's a wild west. <laughs> okay, well, here comes another dateline. August 13th, 2001, Associated Press. School teachers in seven states have mounted protests against children bringing their Furby animatronic friends to school, according to a spokesperson for the National Education Association. Margaret Dippler, a third grade teacher in Des Moines, Iowa, said, Furbies in the classroom are chattering amongst themselves all the time. They have (laughs) no sense of restraint and set a bad example for the children. I've tried to learn Furbish so I can get the darn toys to shut up, but they ignore me. Oh, they ignore me. I like, I'm like, oh my oh, God. Oh, Miss Dippler, you have gone above and beyond. Seriously. Teachers, they just are expected to do so much anyway. Well, Roger Baker, CEO of the company responsible for the hugely successful toys, sees nothing wrong with having them in the classroom. Of course he doesn't. He's like, in fact, school districts should buy one for every student. He says, <laughs> Furbies are capable of learning as much as an average child. Our communities have a responsibility to educate these electronic creatures to be responsible members of society. Uh, hmm. What? <laughs> so they, they were kind of controversial because they were. This is another toy that was like really annoying and disruptive, and put yeah. kids under a lot of stress. Yet they all wanted one. Well, it was because like alarm, like unnatural alarm bells were always going off with them. Like it was just. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they're just like, why do we, kids are under enough stress, right? Yeah. Well, Furbies faced other controversies um, per a 1999 New York Times article called The Furby, Hot Toy Turned Electro Menace. Apparently, the feature where it could record snippets of the owner's speech uh, scared the National Security Agency, prompting a ban on Furbies and anything else with built-in recording capability at NSA headquarters. 
Um, I'm assuming that is because someone brought one to work, uh, but they didn't want, like, the company itself was like, oh, they just had it on their desk. Right, right. The company said that actually the Furbies couldn't record anything, but, like, it was definitely up for debate. Mm, It's weird. Yes, yes. Yeah, just like Alexa is totally not listening to you talk, right? Yeah, she's not listening to me right right now over there. (laughs) Also, the way the Furbies worked, they're like, electronic guts, if you will, uh, got the toys in trouble with the American and Canadian aviation regulators. Um, Here in the United States, the FAA and Transport Canada in Canada uh, forbid the use of Furbies during takeoffs and landings of commercial flights because, like Game Boys, CD players, and other portable gadgets, Furbies emit weak radio signals that could interfere with the air p- aircraft's own electronic oh gear. Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. And of course, like... That's the, crazy. The Furby company was like, but this is when people need the comfort of their Furbies the most. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, Furbies were pretty... They were, I guess they were a little bit longer lived because, you know, they, they debuted in 1998... And they were, you know, had a crazy 1999. And, like, the guys who invented them were just so, they weren't even, like, fully happy with the initial version of Furby. So they were constantly changing them and updating and offering new versions. And they managed to ride the wave until 2005. But then sales just, like, fell off the cliff. Like, no one cared anymore. Mm -hmm. I guess kids moved on. New stuff appeared. Probably everyone had had a Furby, you know. I mean, you're selling a toy that's all about, like, kind of instant gratification, maybe, or quick gratification. And you're expecting it not to be a tool of instant gratification, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. they did do, I think, though, I remember, was that you could have two that would talk to each other. Yes, yes. So and that was kind of that was kind of genius because every kid wanted more than one because you want to at least see what how that works and if it works and you know. So these kids were creating these little Furby like tribes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's <laughs> you know? true. It's true, and that was really smart of them because like. You know, with a lot of these other toys, once you had one Tamagotchi, do you need another one? I mean, your cousin, mm. obviously, different story. But yeah, but, I uh, don't know. Because it's not like they had these, like, fleshed out personalities or anything. Right. And Furbies, too. Like, it was just one personality. So the idea that you could maybe make them talk to each other might incentivize might. you to go back and buy another one. Exactly. Or three more or whatever. Right. But it also diminishes that, like, kind of um, inspiration to create a world yourself. Which, like, if you look back, like, the toys that really have had longevity are the ones that give you that. Totally, totally. And, you know, the inventors, like, were really just hung up on Furby. And so they just continued to innovate on Furby, but they never made any other new toys. Mm. And they were just, I mean, I get it. You make something you love and, you like, it's your passion to get better and better at it. But, like, that's unfortunately just, like, not how toys work. Yeah, well, it sounds like they they just were inventors and creative thinkers that got caught up in the whole manufacturing game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Which is like, sure, you can have a shoe, but you need the shoe to have be very much watered down. That's my experience with it too. Yeah, you totally. Know? So they were probably always trying to get to the dream, never realizing that, and very rarely works that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, that's all we have for today. Um, this is quite quite an epic pair of episodes at this for point. sure for um, sure <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know i was trying to think like oh do i have any like wisdom about toys um to end the show and all i'll just say and i know you feel the same way joss is a little, like t- toys are 
are an important part of my memories. And they were, it was really hard for me to give up my favorite toys and make that transition into what was supposed to be not even adulthood, just teenagerhood. It was like mm-hmm. physically and mentally painful for me to stop playing toys. And you brought Absolutely. up, when you and I were talking about this, you brought up that episode of Pen15 where they're like rushing home from school mm-hmm. to in play. Grade. Yeah, in seventh grade <laughs> to play with their Sylvanian families. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, like that one resonated. It, like seeing that made me feel less like a freak yeah yeah, right totally totally because it was really hard for me to give up toys it is has never happened for me (laughs) 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 i mean like having children just helps me like definitely definitely Uh, just like kind of like you know have a you know an excuse but um yeah no i mean you would just end up doing it in secret yeah and feel guilty right and feel guilty and then one day you just like try to join an industry that let you be someone that plays with things. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like I would totally sit down now and play some Sylvanian families for a couple hours. Oh my gosh, and probably be really yes. good for my mental health. And I feel like that is how like, like, for example, I love the Sims and I feel like the Sims give me that like playing dolls of, without of having to sit in my room and play dolls. Although I like that would be even better. That would but, be even better, right? To brush but I, their hair and change their outfit. Exactly. And decorate their house. And make things for them. I loved making oh, clothes God. and furniture and stuff for them out of you random know, stuff. We spent all morning doing that with our, I have like a Kiwi company advent calendar that my kids are doing and it's all like wooden houses that they put together and little wooden (sighs) things oh my gosh dude it's magical we spent the morning making snowflakes for that village (laughs) wow i love listen up toy manufacturers if you want longevity you gotta like harken back to like that kind of thing because like arts and crafts doing things with your hands. Like if we give kids too much information with their toys, they don't have any opportunity to be inventive or have an imagination. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to last long. Yeah. You know, we can't insult their intelligence. It's true. It's true. I think so too. Like there's so much focus on like a gimmick. Mm -hmm. And if you have to sell that gimmick via like all this sneaky advertising and cartoons and all this stuff, it's not going to last I mean, like, looking at all of those cartoons we talked about from the 80s, like, most of them, no one plays with Transformers now. You know, those were the Mm -mm. kind of toys you unwrapped, you played with them once, you got frustrated or disappointed, and then they, Mm -hmm. like, laid in the bottom of the toy box. Yeah. It just wasn't fun anymore. But I think, like, that boom and bust kind of idea is kind of built into the business now. Oh, yeah. Of it. Planned obsolescence. It's like, we know that that's not going to last long and we don't care. We're going to make a bunch of money in a short amount of time and then yeah. hopefully find the next thing and do it all over again and again and again. And that's the, therein lies the problem, right? Yeah, I think, I think that that is so true. And if we want to think about like how we can mitigate toy consumption waste, just mitigate toy consumption as a whole, I think it is really thinking more about these things that have longevity, that build like, I don't know, like an emotional and intellectual attachment with your kids like i loved barbies uh so much i would play barbies 8 12 14 hours a day if i could i mean like that's all i did on the weekends right i used to be annoyed if we had to go run errands because it was my precious barbie time yeah yeah and like what i didn't like were the barbies that were gimmicky like oh this barbie has a button on the back that makes her like fly or this barbie talks right do not even get me started on the holiday barbies 
that you weren't allowed to open. Yeah, what the heck? Those were for oh, adults, right? I open those bitches right up. Yes. I see them at <laughs> flea markets all the time. Yeah, they in the are, box, right? Yeah, in the box. Yeah, yeah I want to open Because they too. were supposed to like pay for your college or something. They're supposed to be collectible and pay yeah, for your college. And exactly. I was like, um, I'm going to go to art school, so I'm opening this up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> My sister was like, had them all perfectly in the boxes, and I like lost the shoes by the day's end. <laughs> But my mom being like, well, you're not really supposed to open it. And I was like, you're not supposed to open it? No. I'm sorry. That's not happening. <laughs> no one's college is getting paid for by, like, by holiday Barbies. Barbies. Yeah, unfortunately. No. I mean, that was, like, a promise that a lot of different brands and companies were making at that point. But they, right. they did made too many, I guess. Yeah, well, and we talked about this very briefly, but, like, um, Beanie Babies, too. Oh, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the Beanie Baby thing. I, I feel like in the 80s and 90s, everybody was like this is my retirement fund, whether it was right. Franklin Mint Thimbles or Beanie mm. Babies or <laughs> Holiday Barbies or even like limited edition Hot Wheels, like that kinds of stuff. And mm-hmm. you like ultimately like skip that stuff, skip the things that are super gimmicky and like mm-hmm. that there are the ways you can play with it are really limited. Yes. You know, yeah. um, I didn't like babies that needed batteries and I didn't like dolls that couldn't you couldn't like change their clothes like i hated that yeah well the connection is built in the in the um imagination of it right totally totally the doll is doing everything for you it's like okay i'm not even gonna think but you're also not gonna build the connection with it that's just my theory on it anyway no i believe it i believe it i remember so for my eighth birthday uh my mom scheduled surgery for me to get my tonsils taken out mm-hmm. and my adenoids. And I got like tubes between my ears. It was like a mega surgery Oof, on yeah, my birthday. And so I, oh even God, though I was like eight, I had a major grudge against this for obvious reasons. Cause it was like really painful. I was in the hospital for days. I was really sick. And I like went on a hunger strike, even though, you know, you're supposed to be like stoked about eating ice cream. Ice cream I, was, like, for Amelia. I was like, I don't even like ice cream. <laughs> and then, and then I got out of the hospital and I feel like my mom could sense that I was a, different person because i definitely was when i came home i was like wow okay life life is cruel and yeah yeah." and uh she bought me this doll that i had been kind of wanting that was a baby even though like i didn't love baby dolls this one had a really beautiful dress that she came in Mm -hmm. but she cried and did all of these other things when you played with her and i was like this sucks yeah like it's like not i don't care about this doll like this i can't do anything with this doll i can't Mm -hmm. build the story and so i think like you know, the simpler, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think if we're to learn anything, it's that we can't predict the future. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But these, yeah. To- these toys are not going to pay for your kids to go to college. No, just, like, they're let's not. Just like settle that now. Yes. And also, if we looked at, tr- at trends through the years, it's like always those like real simple, the simpler things are the things that like really are remembered. Totally. Agreed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jess. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. I will have to think about what our next oh. blockbuster <laughs> episode will be. <laughs> I've got some ideas. Ooh, okay. I can't wait to hear them. <laughs> thank you, Jess, for spending almost four hours with me talking about toys. What an amazing way to end this year. Seriously. Ugh. I loved editing these episodes so much. I mean, I loved making these episodes so much. I'm sure by now you're following Jess on all her social media platforms because you are as obsessed with her as I am. But just in case you aren't, you can find her on Instagram as at Jess in Space. That's with one S. And also on TikTok 
where she shares some awesome videos as Jess in space. If you didn't listen to any of that, which I totally get, uh, you can also find it in the show notes. I'm hoping to get Jess back in January or February to talk about influencers. We have a lot to break down there. So stay tuned for that. All right, everyone. This is the end of episode 150 and another year of Close Horse. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll be taking a few weeks off because I'm going to Japan with Dustin and because I need a little bit of a break to read, think, write, and get inspired. I'll still be around on social media, but I have quite a reading list for our trip and afterwards. I just want to thank all of you for spending another year with me every week. That's a big deal. I am so grateful to all of you who read and share my posts, listen to the podcast, all the things. Send me nice messages. I need those messages. I'm serious. Those messages are really important to me. Close Horse has changed my life because it has introduced me to so many people, and I've learned so much along the way. This time we spend together really helps me in so many ways to feel less alone, to stay motivated, to get inspired, and to feel supported. I might be the person talking into the microphone, but it's all of you who keep it going and give me the strength to do the work week after week. And through all of this, I've been growing right alongside of you. It's an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. So thank you. All right. Have a happy new year. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. There will be new episodes coming out every week. We recorded a bunch all at once, and it's a lot easier for me to edit. Uh, so I'm going to still be releasing those while I'm traveling. Um, and I'll see you all next year. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing... Please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. In fact, while I'm off for the next few weeks, this is a great time for everyone you know to get caught up on Close Horse. No small feat, right? (laughs) 150 episodes in. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash Podcast. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 